0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours, if you're watching on YouTube. You can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about media and general production. And our second hour uh, is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today we're going to tell some stories. <laughs> we're going to tell some production stories and what we learned from those stories and, and some of the things that we've taken away from them. And hopefully will be a little entertaining and educational all at the same time. So, uh, so stay tuned for that. And if you've got um, things you want to ask us, I guess you are pro- probably just wait for the second hour. But go ahead and throw those questions in right now and make sure to vote on the questions so that we know what order you'd like us to answer them in. Um, let's go ahead and jump into the questions. Bill, what do we have?
1: First one comes from Mike Edwards in Brooklyn. Mike says, morning, everyone. Would the panel mind rating my remote kit to send out for interviews, cooking classes, demos, and so forth? It's a 15-inch MacBook Air, two Insta360 links, an MV7 with a tabletop stand, the laptop riser, Apture MT lights, and Linsole KZs. Thoughts, suggestions? Thanks.
2: Go ahead, Paul. Yeah, that's a great kit. In fact, that's exactly what I'm using in terms of the, the camera, I've got the Insta360, and I've got the MV7. So I'll leave the lighting and the other aspects to the other panelists. But but uh, that part I could talk about. Go ahead, Chris.
3: Yeah, I just wanted to say, I was uh, talking with our friend Jack the other day, and I said to him, uh, and he wasn't at his normal desk, and uh, I said, you sound really good. What are you... What are you doing? He goes. I'm just on my MacBook Air, dude. Or actually, it was a MacBook Pro. MacBook Pro using the internal mic, and Jonas was on the same call, and he goes, "Dude, we almost considered that computer our kit. Like, just use the 1080 camera in there, use the built-in mic. It's surprisingly good. So, I mean, that all that other stuff is is great. I'm I'm on an Insta 360. I think it's the. I th- What's the one that you use Alex the is that the, the link? link is that the same yep. one? Yeah yep. I'm on one of those with a little green stripe around it right now um, I don't know anything about lights. Uh, I love the MV7 but um, Jonas was saying that literally for most of what they need they they really consider just sending out those laptops. Go ahead Mitchell.
4: I, uh, I like remotes. They're fun, but the only thing that you can't depend on is the quality of the sound, particularly the room. So I would add a mix pre to that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that the challenge really is, and we, we definitely put mix pre's into most of our kits. Once we go to this level, we have a mix pre in there specifically for the noise assist. The hard part... It, Exactly as what Mitchell said is the, the thing the challenge we get into is we don't know what kind of room. So in a good environment that MacBook Air works perfectly by itself. In a bad environment you start to hear the edges when people are transitioning. And so because it's just it's a physics problem. Like it it, it becomes no longer a good good or bad processing. It just becomes a physics issue. And so so I think that the um, uh, you know, you can do a lot when everything's perfect, uh, but it, it's when things are a little rough that you have to kind of figure out, um, you know, what what you can and can't do. And so, uh, so I think that the the Insta three links Insta three hundred and sixty links will work. The only thing you have to think about is if you're talking about cooking for, as an example, is that the MV seven is not going to be a great mic for that. You're, you know, so you may want to think about a system in which you have a, you know, you have to figure out what that looks like, but the The headset mic was probably going to be a better solution for that. So something like a DPA forty sixty six or a Countryman H six um, are are kind of some some ones you might want to think about there because if they're going to be moving around and so on and so forth. And the MV seven really needs to be in frame. So if you're, you've got to make sure that you're comfortable, most of us, as you can see, are comfortable with our mics in frame because that produces better audio. <laughs> so so anyway, so most of us put that in there, um, and uh, and so uh, but the. The challenge is if you if you have a guest that doesn't want that, or you have a show that doesn't want that, the headset might. Oftentimes, we find is a little bit harder to get set up on the guest. Um, They fidget with it a little bit more, but it also um, it it gives them a lot less control and a lot. It keeps them from like moving away from it and doing other things like this that drive us crazy. Go ahead, Bill.
1: So um, when I read about the latest MacBooks, and this was interesting, it had to be maybe two versions back. They started doing something called beamforming microphones. Now, I understand that in terms of like line arrays in a concert or something like that, but I've never heard it used in terms of microphones. I would imagine there's maybe a white paper somewhere at Apple rolling around about what this actually does and whether it's pure marketing speak or whether they're doing something specific.
0: It's multiple mics that that are making a bunch of decisions about how your office, you know, I mean, how your how your environment sounds and it's getting better you know i think that the the challenge is always that you know good enough is always the enemy of great (laughs) you know and some say good enough is is the enemy of humanity but um but the um but i think that that is the uh um i think that we you know just have to always be careful as it gets better the problem is people stop doing it and then it doesn't work and then then you're kind of in a in a bind so having having good solid stuff that really pushes forward is is important yeah go ahead chris
3: i 've been in those rooms, Bill, and right now there are people still laughing that they were able to sell the idea of beam forming microphones in the in the um spirit of good enough and this is this is a crazy suggestion and Mike uh, yeah the m v seven comment this is a this is a mic I bought the other day, and um, it 's actually the case for the mic and um This is the cheapest mic I've ever bought with the most features for 40 bucks. This was $40 and it's a, it's a charging case. So it charges the stuff inside, but it also allows you to recharge it. Kind of like your AirPods fold the little thing out. You pull this guy. This is, um, Thunder, Thunder tube, Thunderbolt. Plugs into your phone, yeah. (laughs) Thunder two, (laughs) lightning, lightning bolt. Is it lightning? lightning? Yes, lightning. I'm sorry, lightning. This so it goes into your phone, and then these little guys are little mics, and forty. This is the best forty dollar mic you're ever gonna buy. It's a forty dollar mic. Forty dollar mic. Again, it's it's not great. It's not great but if you're on a budget this you're thing right. is really interesting right but i think that i think that the goal here is that the
0: mic's going stepping a little above that budget and trying to figure out what the right I solution is
3: i understand that but <laughs> i was looking ahead and this is the most appropriate yeah. time i could mention this uh, yeah, it's you made go. by Ulanzi. Yeah. really amazing yeah and and again i would the only thing i would really add to what
0: you had here is potentially a headset mic and then and then i would really think about a mix pre with noise assist because it it cleans up an enormous number of things i i uh, I have a lot of fans here. Right now, mine is set really low. I can turn it up when I have my air conditioning on, and it works exceptionally well. Um, next question.
1: Next question comes to us from Paul Wall. Oh, no, I'm sorry, Bill Mew in Turnbridge Wells in the UK. Last week, I asked about wireless microphones with a feedback channel. I was told that they wouldn't be cheap, but then I found the Ceremonic V Link 2 Kit 2. What stage headsets would you recommend for talent with both earpiece and microphone? So, um,
0: headset, well, so the question really becomes, if you're talking about a headset, a stage headset, you know, typically we would, you know, the, the only one that I know of that's low profile is, um, the, uh, the only low profile one that I know of is the, there's a DPA that has that, you know, that, that has that there. And so that's the, that's the only one I can think of, good bill.
1: I think I remember the conversation from earlier, and I think he was looking for uh, an integrated something he could wear that also had IFB return channel on it. So it was the combination of a of a microphone with IFB in one unit. And it looks like he maybe found one that maybe Ceremonic's doing something some some form of that. Whether it's actually yeah. hardwired or RF, who, know, who knows or Bluetooth.
0: Yeah, it, it is a. Um, it's interesting. Yeah, it's, it's got a. Um, this is uh, it's, i've not seen this before so he found this this is a new thing for us uh, this is made by Sennheiser and it, it it basically has a receiver and that receiver has two inputs that the receiver has a headset input so that you can talk into someone's ear and then it also has the uh, a line out um so that you can put it into your camera or whatever else you want to do with it um and then what it doesn't really show is what the what the um i guess the little receivers look like here they don't have uh, um but it's a uh, but it does look like it has this little two-way, I think the versions that we've done, that we were talking about are probably a little bit more involved um, than this. Um, so the question really is, these are all the Sennheiser ones and they're all running on, I believe these, the Sennheiser kind of has an eighth inch jack um, uh, process. And that might be, a, you know, it's a little bit more challenging to put
3: professional mics into, but uh, it can be done. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I was just going to say, my only experience with a microphone and an IFB is an elastic belt or something and with two belt packs. From two, I, I hadn't heard of anything trying to do this all in once either. Hey, go ahead, Mitchell.
0: Didn't Zaxcom have something like that? It was a two-way communication. Uh, Zaxcom does have a, have a ha, ha, they do have a talkback as well. But again, I think we were talking about ones that were totally integrated and, and we were actually still looking for the least caught. The most cost effective ones and the ones that again the ones that are the most cost effective and effective that i've used in the past have been specifically been the um uh the microflexes from which are not super inexpensive but they're a very small little capsule and they have a regular ta4 input as well as an eighth inch jack output um and this one this one looks good i think that you would need to basically convert The, um, you know, whatever, you know, micro, it'd be a micro dot is what you're looking for is something like a DPA and they have an integrated headset with, you know, that comes out for, if you're talking about someone walking around on stage, there's an integrated one that'll go into their ear. Um, it, it looks like a little spiral, and it comes down, and I don't know what the, the, the number is for it. Um, but that one, that one could be the one that you may want to look at, but then you need to convert its micro dot to the eighth-inch jack, um, the powered eighth-inch jack that goes into that, and I'm not even sure if those mics are compatible with that Sennheiser. You know, the, the Sennheiser interface of using that eighth-inch jack is one of the reasons I don't use Sennheisers in the lower end very much because that little jack drives me crazy. Um, next question.
1: Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas, and here on the panel, would a film festival like Toronto or South by Southwest be a thing for Office Hours coverage like we do at Nam, NAB, SIGGRAPH, and so forth? Good, Paul.
2: Yeah, I, I asked this question because Alex is uh, is in the running to go to South by Southwest, and I voted for him. And I'm telling all my friends, vote for Alex. And uh, I'm thinking, while he's in Austin, there's also besides the interactive, there's the music and the film so maybe it's something you could look at or think about for future office hours coverage. Yeah yeah it's, it's one of those things that the, um, the film festivals I probably I've done
0: a lot of film festivals I've worked a lot of film festivals for other people and I probably wouldn't do it for office hours and mostly because the um, amount of work required to work at a film festival for the output is so high it's probably not worth it. Um, the you know, you're dealing with a lot of VIPs and what happens is everybody's got all these requirements and then you, you can only have the space for six hours and then you have to move everything through the snow and then you have to do all these other things. You know, like it's a, there's like all of this stuff and it's just not worth it. <laughs> like it's not, you know, like I I thought, wow, this would be great because we we've we got some great interviews. But when I talked to the crew and found out like the hell that they went through, to produce that content, I was just like, uh, you know, we can do something, we'll do something else. So, um, so the, you know, I think film festivals are really hard and yeah, film festivals are hard. Um, so to, to work with, cause the film industry is, you know, I mean, uh, I, I don't have a it, nice, it's just very, it's just very backwards. You know, like it's just, it's just, you know, and, and so it's, it's hard to work with. Um, so South by Southwest, I mean, really what we focus on is the expo. So it's just a matter of looking at what the expo looks like and looking what, what expos look like, because we're not, you know, we're not going to get into the, you know, we we don't really care about the sessions. You know, and the reason for that is that sessions for us, you know, sessions for almost all conferences are kind of upside down and backwards. You know, so we're going to talk for forty-five minutes and barely open the mics. For, you know, barely have anything open for questions. That's a backwards thinking. You know, the reason we do that is because open mics are horrible. But if we got rid of open mics, then then we could have we could have an actual conversation. More people people would love to ask questions and process those questions. But we build we you know we conferences in general are just upside down and backwards. I don't want to sit and listen to someone for forty-five minutes ever. Like, you know, I just, like, unless I'm walking around and doing something, cleaning my dishes or doing my, working on my pool, you know, I don't need to, I don't, I'm not going to sit in a chair and actually listen to them. And we find that most people don't. What they do is they text and they... They they email their friends and they do other things while they're while they're listening to it. They don't really sit and listen to it. No, only a very small percentage can do that, and so um, so we wouldn't cover any any of the sessions because again they're hard to watch. But the um, but as far as the expo, if there's th- cool things to see and there's enough of them and they're close enough together, it'd be really interesting. I know that the very first time I saw a live view was was Leo walking around with South, South by Southwest with a live view and crowd surfing with one at, at South by Southwest. So, um, and I've spoken at South by, I have to admit that I go to South by Southwest when I'm speaking, you know, like that's kind of my, my rule. <laughs> so if I go into the, if I go into the, uh, I go, I don't, I go to other than the ones we've started to cover, I only go to conferences that I speak at. I'm period. I don't go to, I don't just, I, there's too many conferences out there. So I had to make a decision. So, so the, um, uh, so now we're kind of you know, looking at this coverage for very specific ones. Um, and if, if I get, if I get, um, if our, if the panel that I'm on is accepted, then most likely we'll do something at South by Southwest because I'll be there. Go ahead, Bill.
1: Well, I was just going to say, I 100% agree with Alex in terms of it. It depends on the focus. There are some of those things like film festivals that they do, you know, 10 different theaters around the city. And that's just impossible because the travel time between setups is just uh, brutal. Uh, when it's, when there is an expo in one specific place, I think we're learning more and more every time we do one of these about how to make it efficient and interesting for the audience. We're, we're just uh, dialing that up and up and up. And I find them getting more and more interesting as we do them because of that. But it's got to be in one location. I think something like NAB can work because maybe there's three halls, but you're on one place. And if you have a couple of teams, you can do a decent job of seeing what's there. You yeah, good, Ball? Yeah, three things. One,
2: today's the last day. So, yeah. so, so this is the day you've really got to see. There's no tomorrow. It's only today. Second, uh, the, they changed the trade show name to Creative Industries Expo. A real fancy name. And Albie and I, who's on office hours from San Antonio, did a walk around and did a lot of video last year. And third, s- stick around for the, pic- for the picnic and softball game. There you go, uh, Alex. I want you on my team. <laughs> there you go. There I you hope you play softball. I
1: don't ringers. It's play all baseball. about
2: ringers. <laughs> now, as, as while we're talking about coverage,
0: of course, uh, office hours going to be at IBC. Um, there is going to be some after hours um, viewing on the fifteenth. Um, that's going to happen between um, uh, 12... Um, 12, uh, 12 uh, 1200 and 1400 utc um that's going pretty early and on on the uh on our our coast here um and then um the uh i'm trying to somehow our announcements didn't have times that i actually recognize <laughs> so i'm sorry so i'll, I'll just kind of throw it out of here um the saturday I, what i do know is that on saturday the um uh Uh, on Saturday on the 16th during the normal office hours. So Saturday the 16th during the normal office hours we'll have, uh, we're going to be covering IBC. So that's September 16th. Uh, That Saturday is going to be, we're going to have the, uh, that's going to be coming in from the IBC team. So stay tuned for that. All right, let's go to the next question.
1: Next one comes from Douglas Carmichael. He says, with UK regulators greenlighting VMware's acquisition by Broadcom, what other desktop virtualization products would you recommend on Mac OS? Go ahead, Jason. Yeah, this is pretty open and shut. I'd say parallels. Next question. Next question comes up from Christian Cody in Falls Church, Virginia. Christian says, "My main computer is an M1 MacBook Air, and I'm currently pushing it to a 27-inch Scepter gaming monitor, plus Duet and an iPad. The built-in monitor is a little too small for me to enjoy using it as a second monitor. Should I get a bigger main monitor?" Good, Chris. Uh, Christian, I totally appreciate big
3: monitors. Uh, I know that in editing, I, I don't like working on anything less than like 27 inches. Um, At a certain point, you're going to run into the limitation of the number of monitors that you can run with that MacBook Air. Um, So welcome to the game. You're going to start upgrading monitors, and then you're going to need a new CPU. And then next thing you know, you're going to need a new mouse pad, and it just goes downhill from there. Go ahead, Paul.
2: I've seen Chris's monitor set up. He's got five or six monitors. He's got a a mega M2. He's got the M1. He's got it all. He's got the incredible diagram. No, Chris, you've got it. And uh, uh, when it comes to duet practice, because that that can get tough. It's kind of hard to master duet. Yeah,
0: the um, I tend to move to multiple monitors, so I tend to move things on. I, I have lots of monitors, but I, I don't go for bigger monitors that I find them harder to work with, especially when I have extra cameras and stuff like that. So I put monitors on arms, and I would suggest thinking about it. Um, next question.
1: Vic looks like Sinise in Lowell, Indiana. I bought a Saramonic for remotes for my iPhone. I want to use it with my iPad, but it uses USB-C. Is there a Lightning to USB-C converter that works? I actually
0: don't think that there is. I don't think you can do that. Um, so I think that the you got it for your iPhone. So the issue you got you got these for the iPhone. There's a converter. There, I, I believe that Saramonic may make one for the for the iPad that has a USB C. But I don't think you can go from U. I don't think you can do the USB C to uh, to Lightning. Go ahead, Chris.
3: This kind of reminds me of the era right after Apple took the floppy disk out of the iMac and then you have the USB floppy drives. And There's always like crossover moments yeah, where, yeah. where one technology starts to go away and a new one comes in. And unfortunately, I think we might be in that place. I have to admit, I, I still don't agree with the fact that
0: the EU pushed this whole, like you have to do something. Because I just think, I think creating a government regulation for this now paints it into steel and concrete and like, it's not going to be the right solution in a couple of years. And so, so I think it was a dumb idea, but what I will say is I've gone from, you know, all these different things to every time I pick up a new device, it doesn't have USB-C. I'm like, what the what? You know, like, like now I have to find something new, you know? And so it's, um, so I'm hoping that the new iPhone will be USB-C because it's one of the few things I have left that I carry regularly that isn't, isn't USB-C. Go ahead, Jason.
5: Yeah. There's lightning to USB-3 and I've never seen USB-C.
1: Yeah. Uh, next question. Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas, up next. Paul says, LG Gram laptop is two pounds, 120 hertz OLED, color-changing chassis. That's right. The lid can change colors from blue to orange to pink. Invisible touchpad. Is it a winner? And discuss. And he's got a link to it there on The Verge. I don't know. It sounds
0: like a lot of form over function
1: to me. <laughs>
0: like,
3: like It feels pretty desperate. Like, we can put lights in it. Like, uh, you know, I, I think that there'd be just... It, I I guess kids. Does it run the Mac them. OS?
0: Well, beyond the Mac OS thing, it's just like, okay, we're going to put, cu- I mean, maybe maybe creators would, you know, there's, there's a creator out there that wants to put it in their thing, but I can't, I don't, as soon as I start seeing that kind of stuff on a laptop, I assume it's not going to work very well um, because it's they're focused on the wrong thing. Next
1: question. David Brady in New York City. Is it possible to rename USB devices at the driver or device level in OS X? Reason being, I want to do an A-B comparison of the Sure X2U and the MX2U and both show up as Sure Digital. I have two identical AKG451s ready to go. Uh, I don't think it. you can. I
0: think you have to figure out which one is which. Um, uh, I don't. No, I don't think you can, I don't think you can, I don't know of any way to hack that. And we've had trouble with this before because we've had, we have this problem with cameras too. Um, You in a, in a, uh,
3: know, go ahead, Chris. That's a super weird problem, David. I would just plug them both in, look at them in the menu, do the, you know, scratch yeah. test on one and go, okay, that's this one. And then start your test. But yeah, that's... That's super frustrating. We've had this problem. We, it's, it's a problem we've had not just with USB
0: interfaces, but with cameras. You know, you get a whole bunch of BRIOs or you get a whole bunch of Insta360s and they all look the same to the, to the devices, you know. And so um, it's a little bit, the Insta360s can, I, you know, the, the software itself knows which one is which. It's got a serial number, but the, otherwise they all just show up as a long line. We've had this problem with BRIOs all the time. Yeah, go ahead, Jason.
5: All right, um, work with me here. This is a weird way to do it. You could take two aggregate sound devices, connect each one, and I believe you can rename those aggregate sound devices. Other than that,
0: yeah, it's going to get weird. Oh, you're
3: right. That's... That's a
0: really good that's idea. A, that's a good idea. Yeah. So you build the aggregate sound device inside of that's the in the audio, um, what audio was, MIDI, yeah, audio kit. MIDI toolkit. You build two different devices that it's designed to aggregate multiple sound devices together, but you would just give each one its own thing and then you would give them their different names and then it should show up as a separate one. You could call them Brady Test One and Brady Test Two. Yeah. I guess in the same vein of that, you could create two devices inside of Loopback and do the same thing, you know, where you could. Just created
3: a, a device that has. Lubuntu like is computers. really kind of just a I don't know. a more friendly version <laughs> of the audio MIDI toolkit. I, in my opinion, the only thing I think you might have trouble with is if you
0: unplug it and plug it back in, it may go to the wrong one. So it, it, I don't know if, I don't know if it sees the the base. The baseline, I don't know whether it sees past that name. So I'm not sure, I've, in, in the past with cameras, we've had trouble with it, like rearranging the cameras if we unplug and plug it back in. It's kind of like you plug them in and then you all have to go through each one of them and set them up. So, interesting problem. Let us know, David, how that goes. Uh, next question.
1: Tony Mobley in Noonan, Georgia. I have finally cut the cord. I am using Apple TV boxes. I have several streaming services. Do I also need YouTube? Uh, go ahead, Mitchell.
4: Uh, Tony, congratulations for cutting the cord. I've been kind of juggling with the same thing. Here's the funny thing that happens when you start that process. First, uh, when you, like with DirecTV, all of a sudden their pricing just went way low. And I was concerned that uh, I've been paying way too much for so long. Uh, secondly, my friends uh, over at Magnolia say that 90% of the uh, installations they do start with a uh, Apple TV. And then they use that to aggregate all of the other plus services, including YouTube. And I agree. I think the Apple TV interface is much easier. So you only re- need the one box. And I think Apple TVs where to go. Good, Paul.
2: Yeah, I absolutely get YouTube. Uh, I think Chris Fenwick, didn't you say you watch a 80 YouTube f- a day or something? Much it's more just, YouTube it's just me, so addictive, YouTube. And yep. uh, there's so much good information there. And get the premium version because uh, then you won't have all the commercials. And I'm pretty sure you can have multiple accounts on premium. Yeah. So you can like take one account and have a special interest on that and then have two or three other accounts. Yeah. Different interests, uh, yeah. So there's and there's two it.
0: different services there. It's, there's says YouTube and YouTube TV. And so, um, so there's YouTube is, uh, of course, you want premium. It's not very expensive, and it's worth every penny because I don't know how anyone could ever watch YouTube with your ads, like the ads popping up all the time and just it's just torture. And and uh, like I, I, I've run out every once in a while. I haven't, haven't had ads for years now. And if if I my, my, my change my credit card or something, I end up with like a couple days of it. I'm like, how do people even use this service? So um, anyway, so I would definitely get premium. Uh, I have YouTube TV. We use it all the time. It's mostly just because I don't watch anything in real time. So I go, oh, like yesterday I was going to watch, you know, this week with George Stepanopoulos or whatever. And I just thought about when I wanted to watch it and turned it on. I know that you can do that with TiVo, but I do it with everything. Like I just have, I'm recording the world all the time without any storage, without any other things. And it just, it just works. Um, So I would highly recommend YouTube TV. Go
1: ahead, Bill. This niche occasion of all the services is driving me a little crazy. I because I place advertising and I have to be able to see how it comes across on all these cable services, I'm subscribed to almost all of them. And I gotta tell you, sometimes I click on something not realizing to Alex's point that it's one of those commercial adjacent things, and now it drives me insane. I mean I'm so used to not having to stop and watch commercials that it's crazy. The other thing, though, is that, you know, if I want to see something that's only on HBO, no, oh, that's pretty easy for me. But just last night, I decided to go back and watch an old series of uh, Joe Pickett, which is only on Spectrum. And they have a deal with Paramount. So it's only on their service. So no matter what you do to try to aggregate, you're still going to end up having to serve multiple masters because of this niche content but, thing.
0: By the way, I think that we can all do the world of service. If, if we get to a service that makes you watch the ads, you should just
1: cancel it. We we can
0: all cancel those services because it's just wrong, you know? And, and the, uh, um, if I was, if at some point I feel like I'm going to end up retreating and using a lot less services. And right now the three that I'd probably end up with is Apple, Amazon, and YouTube. So YouTube TV and YouTube, Apple TV Plus, and Amazon are probably the three I could probably are the, the base three that I would use. And everything else, I'm I'm kind of looking sideways at Max and Netflix and and Disney Plus because I just don't use them very much. Like I just don't find myself in them that often. And so um, I kind of go, well, I don't know. If you how had long to I'm pick
3: one, these. Alex, if you had to pick one, which would it be? YouTube, hundred yeah, I mean- percent. Me too. Yeah, <laughs> like, like there's not, there's not YouTube or YouTube. T- I mean, because the other spend, ones don't have cats playing pianos.
0: Well, yeah, or or three D, three D virtualization of of the Battle of Hastings. I mean, you know, like, you, if you don't have that, I mean, how can you even think that you're a network? Uh, go ahead, Mitchell.
4: Um, Apple TV allows you to download apps for everybody, including YouTube, and they work quite well. I can compare it to the internal uh, mishmash that's
0: in my regular smart TV. Well, I, I they think they, they were just looking... Low. I think we're just looking at the services themselves within that Apple right. TV. And so yeah, so the and, and yeah, I I don't you shouldn't let your T V talk to the Internet. You should get an Apple
1: totally. T V.
0: Don't don't let your T V talk to the Internet. That's not it's not healthy for anyone. Um, next question.
1: Paul Wallace back again from Austin. One panelist suggested you have some walking music at trade shows like NAB coming up. What about this idea of having some bells and whistles like that? Good, Mitchell. I'm just wondering what's going on. That's so
4: boring that uh, you have to place music uh, underneath it. I mean, if it would took two or three minutes to get someplace, mm-hmm. some intermission, interstitial uh, music. But uh, if I had to pick something, uh, "Walking on Sunshine," "Katrina and the Waves," uh, it's, "Walking it's, Fast it's,
0: Domino," it's, it's Brazilian bossa nova or nothing. Um, there ahead, you go. Girls from, from Epa Epa. Epa. No, no, just like in the background. Go ahead, Paul.
2: Yeah, uh, you know Nancy Sinatra. These boots are yeah, made for yeah, walking. Yeah. Not really, but okay. but we have so much uh, musical talent yeah. on this yeah. sh- on the show. All right, go ahead, Chris.
3: It's a live band. You just got to have a live band and just cue up. Just Mariachi you know. band following you around. Good Victor. Get so, Victor and just do little sax solos <laughs> while you're walking. I, I can tell you that the chances are
0: pretty low given that I won't, if I walk into a restaurant or a bar and it's playing music, uh, there's a high probability. If it plays it any more than like negative 60 dB, I'll, I will eat there. But I will never eat there twice. Like I literally won't go back to a restaurant with um tvs yeah please stop um the uh tvs uh loud din you know not very good audio and music in the background are the three things that keep me from ever going back to a location um so i don't think i would i don't think i would probably do it on a show that i made um next question
1: Roscoe Jones, Northern, uh, Madison, Indiana. At SIGGRAPH, Mike Seymour talked about doing foreign language dubs with AI mouth shaping. Is this a relatively new process? Is cost an issue? Or will old movies soon be redubbed into many shaped languages? And go ahead, Chris. I don't know. I I'm, I would imagine it can be done in, in post.
3: Uh, no, definitely it can. But I saw Mike Seymour do a demo of this. And it was a... It was one of these things where it was a super difficult demo to do because it's so outside your realm of understanding that you don't even right. know what you're looking at. Right. And, but it's, really amazing. Like you take, if you take the mouth shaping thing and then all of the voice synthesizers and the fact that I can take the CEO's voice and he mispronounced the name of the new service and just like type it in and then morph his, uh, it's, uh, it's super frightening.
0: It, it, you know, the thing is, is that it, it is a, um, what happens is you're looking at, at you're doing smart fakes of the face. So you're just all you have to do is change the change the, um, the mouth. And then you're doing a smart fake of the voice. Now, the interesting thing is, is that a lot of times what they're doing is they need to get the intonation from an actor. So the actor's still there saying it in another language and then the computer is used to close the distance between the the it has to do a pretty complex thing which is it's pulling the intonations from the original actor using the other actor to get the pronunciations correct and then and then forming that into the the audio that sounds like that actor so that's the way they're doing it currently i have a feeling that we're going to get somewhere at some point It's going to get to a point where it doesn't need the translation actor. It can just take the actor and just put them into lots of different languages. But the issue is, is you really can't, it's not going to work of just letting it figure out what he said because of the way that sound works and the way people are doing it with emotion and all these other things. So it's going to be something that it's going to take some time for it to kind of figure out, but it's going to be an interesting, interesting process as we go forward. We will get it in 60 languages and... I think they'll look at going back as kind of like colorization of films. You probably won't see as much of it there. Um, next question.
1: Jack Rupel, Breck- Breckenridge, Colorado. I have a Stream Deck Plus, and I understand that the buttons can be animated. I'd like to develop for the Vision Pro. Has anyone designate uh, designed animated icons on the Stream Deck for eventual use in Vision OS? Go ahead,
0: Jason.
5: Fun fact, every single Apple TV icon is designed with this in mind. There is a a secondary parallax that goes into the icons of the Apple TV. So um, I... I don't, I don't see this as too much of an extension from that. I, I don't think I, the Stream Deck has ever even been addressed. How draft, are you going to so see
0: yeah. the Stream Deck, though? How are you going to see, like, like, if you're in the... You, you, you're you'd in have the to track it, right? Oh, right. So I, that'd yeah, be hard. Yeah, that'd be hard. I, yeah, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if that's, we've gotten that far yet. I think most people are just happy to get something to show up in the vision. Um, next
1: question. David Brady, New York City, looking to rack-mount a few stream decks and not afraid of taking things apart. Check this out, and it's a 4 x 15 by 2 x 32 flavors. I don't know quite what that means, but it's under the uh, heading stagehacks.com, and there's a link there to it. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, Chris Fenwick
4: has a shot of it. Uh, It is the coolest looking thing I've ever seen. It's a rack with a bunch of buttons on it, and they're all Stream Deck buttons, which means they're lit up or maybe animated a little bit. But uh, the only thing you have to do that's slightly technical is remove the faceplate from your Stream Deck uh, uh, in order to have it fit flush with the, uh, the rack
0: mount. But really cool. So this is a. It is you have to. Um, let me get this straight. So you're taking the stream deck. You have to rip off the front of it. Is that right? And then you, um, and then you slide it into the. You slide it into here, so the so the keys just come through. Because really, the keys. Yes. Because the keys themselves are just pieces of plastic over a monitor, right? I mean, that's the. I think that that's how that's working there.
3: Oh um, yeah, go ahead, Chris. Are you there, Chris? Do we lose you? Yeah, I'm sorry, sorry, sorry. So about the idea of custom control panels, I just saw this company today, this morning. They make NASA-style control panels, <laughs> and they have a whole bunch of them, and they absolutely look like you're in the, you're inside a. Uh, Oops, sorry, I just lost you. Yeah, 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 it absolutely looks like you're inside, like you know, a NASA uh, capsule or something. And who makes there's, those? Um, I'll have to look for it. I, d- I, l- I just searched for, uh, you know, NASA style control panels. Well, this is playing very
5: heavily into my delusions of grandeur. I love it. Right. Oh, I, I yeah, see they a they whole also switch. make it for the space
4: shuttle uh, for the uh, Millennium Falcon. No, it's super fun. Super yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. fun. All right. All right. Let's and what, one out. of them was labeled Kraken, and, and it was yeah. release. And then when you flick it down, it goes to Karen. Oh. <laughs> yeah.
0: The, the, uh, um, the uh what was I going to say we, they we used to do build switches like this for a lot of our shows, but we would we would design them you can design the plates and send them out and have someone etch them and we really felt like that was it was a little ad like so if someone spends. for us to build a studio for them in their, you know, like a small studio in their office. We felt that spending $400 on etched steel was worth it. (laughs) So, so what, so instead of having some goofy little uh, set of buttons, we had something that was etched out with nice little etched buttons and they could just tap on them. And one was a person and one was a computer and one was a two people. So you just knew what you were hitting and it, I don't know. I felt like it was a great, a great add on that, that people seem to really enjoy. It's like a little surprise and delight um, thing, thing. Yeah, go ahead. Conquered Aerospace. Concord Aerospace copy. Uh, next question.
1: Next one comes to us from Trevor Harrison in Burnaby, British Columbia. Alex, is Apple still on tack to go, track to go private in 2024?
0: You know, I thought that that was going to happen. It didn't. <laughs> it's not going to. You know, I think that the thing that I didn't really know when I, when I said that, that was from a Mac break reference maybe 10 years ago, was really understanding the value of a publicly traded company to, a, um, uh, to the employees. So beyond whether it's worth it or not for it to have all these investors, which it's, uh, that's a, probably not, um, what's really worth it to a company is having a way to um, empower employees. And somebody and I don't know who in our group has an open headphone or something because I'm hearing myself back. Um, Anyway, so, um, uh, so anyway, so the, um, uh, so the, Uh, Yeah. So I think that there's the reason that, you know, when we think about like, why is Apple doing all the stock buybacks? Why are they doing dividend buybacks? Why are they doing all those other things? A lot of that has to do with maintaining um, a good stock portfolio. And a lot of that has to do with, with employee retention because those employees are getting what we would tend to call um you know the golden handcuffs which is that they keep on getting stock with its vesting over four years and they you know they keep waiting that stock out there's always a reason to stay a little bit longer and that's an extremely valuable tool it's much better than paying people more money um with 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 cash is to give them stock that vests slowly and so that model is super powerful and i don't think i understood that when i when i uh took it on yeah go ahead paul
2: yeah um Forbes says they, they have to uh, buy back about $250 billion, but that's an old article. So yeah. they may still yep. have mm-hmm. to uh, buy back a, a several billion dollars they wouldn't, yeah, to they get in a neutral, neutral yeah. position. Yeah, good Bill.
1: They flirted not long ago with $3 trillion in a market cap. so they're Well, that obviously- makes it much harder.
0: When your stock goes yeah. up, it makes it a lot harder for you to buy back yourself. So it was easier when they were smaller.
1: But it's interesting, you know, we've heard of people who are so wealthy that they just completely exit from the banking system and become their own family bank. And I think Apple is at such a financial place of strength right now that you just, whatever they're doing, it's probably because they think that's the best long-term play for a variety of things. And I don't think any time at that level, those decisions are are easy because it just has such a ripple effect. Think of the number mm-hmm. of countries that their operations affect. They have to be very cautious, right. and I think they make those decisions mm-hmm. on good financial f- foundations, not just whims.
3: You go ahead, Chris. So Alex, I'm curious, the, in my limited understanding, uh, to be privately held, you would remove the responsibility to cater to the shareholders. Do we, do, do we think that Apple, well, you do a lot more uh, than that. I mean, like you,
0: you the level of requirements, level of legal requirements, reporting, re, uh, uh, you know, requirements. Um, okay. Even Sarbox, you know, like lots of things around like um, uh, a monopoly, you know, monopolies and everything else. There's all kinds of things that happen when hmm. you're not publicly traded. It, it, the government loses a lot of access to controlling what you do. So, um, not all access, but but it definitely reduces it. But I'm now talking outside of my area of expertise.
3: Yeah, it's, <laughs> so cur- it's curious
0: thought yeah, so, now. Yeah. Um next well, we can bring somebody in to talk about that, but I probably shouldn't say more because I don't know. Um uh next question.
1: Liberty White, in the land of Georgia. When it comes to travel for leisure, what are some of the gadgets or tech that you won't leave home without? My phone.
2: That's 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 the big one. Like <laughs> my phone I take with me. Uh yeah, go ahead, Paul. Yeah, my uh Apple Watch and my iPhone and uh
1: my HT, my yep. ham radio handy talkie. Yep. Yeah, go ahead now, Bill. Yeah, I, it's just my Apple ecosystem, and it really now is extended into the watch, the phone, the uh, laptop. And so I those tools, to me, make my life go around now, for better or for worse. If it yep. all falls apart someday, I'm stuck. But right now, it's really, that's what I live with. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. Liberty, it's leisure. Leave the stuff at home. Like maybe your
3: phone, I I can't get my wife to take, my wife loves to go hiking on the weekends and her and her sister will be gone for hours. I can't get her to take her phone. I go, you realize there's, there is some advantages to having your phone with you, but yeah, just enjoy yourself. Don't carry around a big bag of Apple stuff. That's bad. I uh, I have to t- I, right now. The thing that I'm carrying
0: with me is an ambisonic mic in Scorpio because I I'm really into the ambisonic recordings. And I'm like, if I'm going to go somewhere in the in nature, I would need to bring some electronics to capture it. It's very hard for me. I didn't. Oh, really I, I walked away with from a, it. A yeah, ten thousand like, uh, dollars sound card. You know, you know uh, go ahead, Bill, real quick.
1: I leave every day with nothing but my watch and my AirPods to, to exercise, but I could leave the AirPods behind. So the one thing that I really can't live without is the watch because it has cellular connection. It's for safety and it also does crash detection and things like that. So if I have a heart attack and fall over, I want that. Yeah, I, I,
0: I do capture so much with my phone that I, I think my phone is a thing that is very hard. And my phone is part of my wallet, so both of them are tied together. Uh, next question.
1: Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas, up again with, I asked a question Saturday that wasn't clear, so I reword it now. Goods coming directly from China work worse than the same exact goods coming from Amazon or other U.S. sources. Is this correct? Good, Paul.
2: Yeah, I I just did not have that question together Saturday, and I finally figured out what I wanted to ask. And a friend of mine, he said, every time he gets a... uh, package from China, directly from China, it's inferior quality. But if he orders the same thing on Amazon, it's good quality. Is that true? Is this the no. case? I mean, if it's the same brand and the same thing, there's a better chance that you're going to get a there's, a. there's a
0: higher probability if you order directly from China that you'll have a, a, a knockoff. And that's probably what he's referring to. I, I don't think that otherwise it's, a, otherwise if it's exactly the same thing, it's going to be exactly the same thing. Uh, next question.
1: Douglas Carmichael in the U.S., many people with speech disabilities use the telecommu- telecommunications relay service. For those that acquire speech disabilities later in life, would Apple's personal voice technology connected to a phone be a game changer? Yeah, I think the
0: Apple's general move towards all kinds of accessibility uh, is um, is is useful. Next question.
1: Next one comes to us from David Brady. Uh, one last one for me today. M- MBA M2, MacBook Air M2, and the Korg Nano Control. USB mini on the Korg to USB-A, then USB-A to USB-C adapter. Power light pops on and goes out. The device is not recognized. How's Chris connecting to his Nano Control? You go ahead, Chris. It's interesting, David. Can <laughs> Is it not possible to get the USB...
3: A, a, a single cable. Uh, it might be that. So I'll, I'll be honest with you. My nano controls are plugged into USB-A ports. Uh, well, well, one is going directly... Well, uh, one is going... They're both USB-A. One goes directly into the mix Pre, so that's kind of a throwaway. But the one that goes into the, uh, the Mac is going into a USB-A port. I would see... I don't know if that's a cable. Can you get... The one USB to the thing and you can get the USB A to USB
0: C, but I think that one one thing for you to look at is uh first I would try it with just going straight into the USB A and see if that works. The next thing I would do is probably use a hub before I used a USB C connection because I think it's the handshake across the USB C that's causing the problem. So I think that you wanna you'd probably wanna hub out one of the two because I think that the
3: your MacBook Air The problem is that the Korg is a USB mini. So it starts as USB mini. So the oh, question right. is, can you get a cable that's USB mini into USB-C? I don't know. No, I don't think so. But I, but I would
0: go, I would try a, USB, the, a USB-C um, a hub, and then I would put yeah. the USB mini into the hub. I, would, I think that you're going to have more, more yeah. luck with that.
3: I think I the think cable that, part that isn't going to work. Right? I think just, the answer is you have to have a little box of happy in between the two. Yes, go Jason.
5: No, Alex, you got there. Um it's a USB hub or or you know, it's just not going to work.
0: Cuz the hub has the circuitry to make that correction pro- um, That's right. pro- properly and the cables are not going to not going to have that. Um, yeah, next question.
1: Rian Smith in Trinidad West Indies come January February 2024 I'd love or I have a dream to live stream a concert in Atmos how would this be possible uh, with hardware and live platform costs I am an owner of an A Ten Mini Extreme ISO and colleagues are audio engineers and he notes I guess this is a band Tomorrowland did it and has a YouTube link to that. Yeah.
0: And so the question really is, is whether you want to stream in Atmos or or into the multiple channels. And so you can define it as Atmos. But generally what happens is, is that that software, the the music is basically being processed as it may be processed with objects and beds. But when it goes out live, um, at least the most of the times that I've seen it, it gets converted back into channels and so and then it is defined as Atmos, but it really is a channel-based uh, streaming system. So really what you're doing is a 514 714 916. Uh, usually we limit to about 916 because we have 16 channels in an SDI feed and if you're doing live streaming you don't want to put trying to deal with more than 16 channels into the feed itself so, so 916 is your kind of your outer edge. A lot of us have done a lot of stuff at 514 and 714 um, and so you're going to build those channels you're going to feed those into your encoder and then you're going to define that and that that can be done actually in um, in aws so you can either have a hardware encoder elemental makes um, has has a feature that'll handle atmos um, but you can also stream it to aws so you take something like uh, let's say you want to do ultra you, you want to do ultra because the basic link uh, so the, there's the ultra link and the basic link from AWS. The the basic link will only do eight channels of audio, where the ultra will do sixteen channels of audio, and that's going to allow you to pack that five one four seven one four nine one six onto it. Um, and then what you're going to do is you're going to pack that onto your UHD signal. We'll we'll call it UHD, and you can even make it HDR if you want. Um, or it's going to be you're going to send it up as some kind of you know, typically like a PQ 2020. And you're going to send it up to AWS. And when you get to AWS, you can then define it on the way out. You can define it as vision. You can define it as HDR10, HLG. um, And then you... um, but you can also define the audio as Atmos. So what that's going to do is it's going to flag it as Atmos as it goes out. So even though it's channels, it's being flagged as Atmos. So when it hits your Apple TV or something like that, it goes, hey, I got a bunch of channels to give you and Atmos will then hand it to you. I don't know anyone, I mean, maybe Tomorrowland's doing it. I don't know anyone that's doing Atmos streaming to, I don't know anyone that's doing Atmos streaming with objects because that would be from, a, it, this comes down to a, Problem with manifests and all the different devices that it may have to handle so so i don 't and and keeping that metadata along a production pipeline is not hard not 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 easy so uh, so i I think almost everybody I know that 's doing this right now is doing channel based through the production pipeline because it 's relatively stable, and then when it gets to on the other side you 're able to do that as well um, and so uh, and then the other thing you want to look at is i saw i don 't i haven 't looked at the YouTube thing yet, but if you 're talking about seeing it in YouTube. That's 5.1. So YouTube is doing 5.1 to, uh, 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 over the television boxes, and so so the OTTs are all um, uh, 5.1. So it's not necessarily Atmos, but it is surround, and it's really cool. Yeah, go, Jason.
5: Yeah, I, I had to look into this. Tomorrowland is a, a massive dance festival in um, in Europe. They used a, a Lawo MC a Squared 56, which is a 96 channel audio production console, and apparently, they had available the 514 mix through Atmos. But I don't think they streamed it. I think they had an immersive experience where you could go somewhere and
0: have the Atmos experience, but I don't think it was publicly right. available over YouTube. It can be streamed. So, you know, I've done Atmos streaming, so it can, it, it, it's definitely possible to do Atmos streaming. The Whether they do it, the, here's the real challenge is that if you want to do Atmos streaming and you want to stream to Apple devices, you just say, this is Atmos, and they all work. Like, literally every, every Apple device made in the last five years will go, hey, I, I know what to do with this. I can put it in your ears, I can put it in the screen, I can put it everywhere. Windows and Android, not so much. <laughs> And and we have, uh, I have um, been dragged along the asphalt for miles, uh, you know, trying to figure out how to get Atmos to work on Windows and Android reliably, and a lot of this has to do with the. Um, uh, A lot of it has to do with the manifest and how manifests are handled. The way that this actually gets done for feature films is they build hundreds of manifests. So literally, it's a dynamic manifest delivery. So like if you look at Disney, Disney might have 450 manifests. And it goes, oh, you're this Android. I'm going to hand you this specific one. Oh, you're this. I'm going to hand you this specific one, which is the only thing you can read. And it's just a nightmare. Um, And it's all the Android and Windows side of Atmos streaming is. Is the problem. So, um, anyway, because the Apple stuff all just works. Oh, next question.
1: Andre Dalle in Berlin says I want to buy an Apple TV for my quite vision impaired mother so that she can watch YouTube gym, uh, gymnastic videos from her iPad on a big screen. Should I buy an older one from eBay or a current one? Advantages, disadvantages? Never used a newer one than Gen 3. Go ahead, Bill. I think the, the issue is going to be. What's she? What's her watching pattern now? If she just wants to watch these, you should have no problem. Hook up your Apple TV, help her find the channel for those or the feed for those, and she's done. If, on the other hand, she's a pretty big TV consumer and likes to watch local channels and things like that, that's the one thing that Apple TV can sometimes have difficulty with. Now, not always, because we have a Spectrum app. We're in a Spectrum cable area, so we put that on the Apple TV. So we can get local news, local channels, local information through there. But just make sure that that's available if she likes those kind of viewing adventures. Because if we occasionally have ours set up so the Apple TV is on one input on the TV and our regular cable service is available on another channel, and it can be a hassle to find a second remote, change inputs, have to get to the other system, then remember you're in that system when you want to come back and watch the local news on the regular one. I wouldn't put... My, my grandmother who's uh, maybe having trouble with her eyesight into a system like that. I'd want to make it as easy as possible.
0: Yeah, I don't, and there's so many different generations. It's hard to even know when, what generation you're talking about because it could be the fifth generation or a third generation or or is it a 4K third generation or, a, you know, these all these different versions of these. Um, but I would go back to, I wouldn't probably go back earlier than 2021. Um, you know, so I would probably, you know, I think that those are, you know, you're going to have operating system issues that maybe she has to deal with things. And so I'd probably go back to 2021 to, um and that's a version or two back. Um, and, uh, um, and then, Maybe even 2018. I mean, I have older ones that I use fairly regularly, but they are quirky at times. Um, It's just in the sense that the operating system is looking for something that's not there anymore. Um, Next
1: question. Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas. Participation tracker measures speaking in real time so it's clear when somebody hasn't gotten a chance to speak or when it might be time to pass the mic in your Zoom meeting. Discuss, and he has a link there to it. Go ahead, Paul.
2: Yeah, this, would, this would, wouldn't be something you'd need in office hours because, you know, you have an equitable distribution of speakers. But in a corporate meeting, it's, a lot of yeah. times the main speaker will dominate the conversation. So this I, would but, give everyone a chance and tell, tell them who spoke and how many percentage. There's another app called Rewind.ai that's phenomenal, that yeah. tells yeah, I, you I, everything I, you've done in a Zoom meeting. It it takes your Zoom meeting, dissects yeah. it, analyzes just, it, and spits so out a report on how you wrong. did. It's all
0: amazing. of this stuff is measuring the wrong thing. <laughs> i <like, I'm> so, <laughs> so sorry. I just like, it's like measuring participation. It's me- measuring the effectiveness of the meeting is what matters. Like, did people get what they needed? Did they learn what they needed? The idea that we should try to figure out how to make it equitable. Sometimes there's a person that's giving instructions or asking people things and they're going to show up higher than that. Like all of this corporate you know, like word clouds and, you know, all this other stuff is all just, it's so corporate, you know, and it's, it's, it so doesn't matter. Like, you know, not to the, not to the actual effect of the event, you know? And so I, I just feel like people get into these things and it's just, it, I'm sorry, it's a point of annoyance of mine. Go ahead, uh, John.
1: Elon Musk has a counter in meetings and
0: shows how much, t- how much money they're wasting in the meetings. That's a good counter, um, yeah. So uh, you know, one thing about me is like, if someone if someone schedules a meeting, I expect twenty five minutes, and and if they do longer, I'm like, really? like, why did we, why do we, why did we schedule more than twenty five minutes? Like, we, I think we could probably fit it there. Uh, next question.
1: Douglas Carmichael, if you were recording a concert via multitrack on the console and you wanted to add Atmos ambience, would a mic like the Sennheiser Ambio VR mic be what you want? And he's got a link to it there.
0: No, you probably would put different mics in different places, shotgun mics to pick up a lot of different things. The Ambio would be very hard because it's close to a lot of things. And, and you'll start, you'll only pick up the things that are really near that mic. Um, so you know, you, usually what we do for those kinds of things is the spread out mics. Those are either shotguns and sometimes even labs, but we move them... You know, and we put a, an array of them, uh, you know, in various places to kind of gather that that data. But otherwise, you the mics, it's really easy to get, like, a person talking, you know, next to you and that you hear in the, in the reverse. And so um, I, I wouldn't use Ambios in that environment. Um, next question.
1: Gordon Lake in Los Angeles. If you're using an M1 Mac Mini for Zoom ISO, is there any situation where you'd capture at 60 frames per second over 30 frames per second? Uh, go ahead, Chris.
3: Um, I... I wouldn't, uh, but I don't. It, it really depends on the content that you're trying to capture. I mean, it's Zoom ISO. It's Zoom. It's probably going to be people talking. I don't think you need sixty frames. Well, and, and also, I, and I, I don't even know. Can it do it? Yeah, yeah Zoom it, can Zoom output sixty frames. I don't it think can so. not that I know of. It no, cannot. It's so a thirty-frame no, per second do platform. It. You're going to make so, a bigger so... file that's heavier that you don't need to
0: mess with. Yeah, there is no upside to doing uh, 60 frames a second records. Um, Next question.
1: Douglas Carmichael, it seems like social media companies are investing a lot in AI technology to moderate content at scale. Do you think human moderators will ever become a thing of the past? Um, No, I
0: I will argue that it's actually going to go the other direction, which is that there's going to be social media and other things that are coming out that are actually anti AI, you know, like you, there's nothing being used that's automated. I think that you're going to find that, that there's a, there's a backlash to the automation because we're, it's getting pushed pretty hard, pretty fast. And people, and generally when every action, creates an op- opposite and equal reaction and I think that you're going to find people are starting will, will bristle and start to say these are human only. This is like we don't serve those kind here this is a human only environment you know um, and I think that you may you may start to see more of that starting to pop up I know people around me are talking about it like they just don't want they don't want the machines <laughs> so so we'll we'll see how that goes uh, next question
1: Andre Daly Berlin, can I share my YouTube premium account with my relatives and create a like a separate user which doesn't see and influence my YouTube playlists? I don't think i
0: uh premium count I think you can I don't think you can do that with apple the youtube t v um, yeah, go ahead, Bill, real quick.
1: Yeah, I just got stuck in that when I was first signing up for YouTube and things like that because my wife and I shared it and all the content that she is interested in and the content I'm interested in is different. So our feeds, because they were concatenated, would end up with a bunch of stuff that I didn't want. So now she has her own account. I have my own account and life is better.
3: Yeah, go Chris? Bill, spending money like crazy over there. I will tell you, I, as you can see, I'm in a new background. I essentially have uh, three different domiciles that are kind of mine-ish and i know that i have it logged in every place but it's
1: the same account next question douglas carmichael in an article about tomorrowland they mentioned 1080 input channels coming from the stage where could all those channels be coming from if it's a dj-centric event with djs mixing pre-recorded tracks go jason
5: Okay, Douglas, all you have to do is go and look at Tomorrowland. This is a massive multi-stage event. That's like saying, why would they ever need 180 st- channels at Woodstock? It is it is so big, th- and like there's so much play out throughout this entire... Uh, s- yeah, you just look at the YouTube, and you'll understand why they need 180 channels.
0: Well, and, and a lot of times, you, know, you want to put those channels in different places, and you have a lot of people going in and out of that system. So you may have... Uh, it actually gets pretty complicated um, for a lot of these systems to, to kind of manage that many channels effectively. But you remember many, many, many different people coming into that. And a lot of times you can't, especially if you're doing an integrated solution, you may want to put out a bunch of channels so you can make it that surround experience or make something more than just stereo. I have to admit that I just watched a, a concert in a, in, a, in a theater over the weekend in, in stereo and it felt very flat. <laughs> I'm, used to, I'm used to five one minimum. And, it, and so I think that being able to get those things is, is probably what they're trying to work through. And then you have lots of performers and lots of other things there. A uh, quick reminder that uh, we have um, we got a lot of stuff coming up here. Um, IBC is coming up, but we're going to have after hours in on the fifteenth, uh, September fifteenth, and then the live show will take over um, our office hours on the sixteenth. So you want to take is that September sixteenth? So the fifteenth is going to be after hours. September sixteenth is going to be the actual show. We've got our European crew covering that, so it should be good. Um, tomorrow, um, Nick Justusin will be here. He's going to be talking about LiDAR and photogrammetry and Unreal Engine, so that should be great. Uh, we're going to do audio. brainstorming so if you've got ideas about things we're not covering in audio that you want us to cover then come on Wednesday and tell us what you want to hear or what you want to see. So um, a little bit of camera rigging on Thursday. So we're going to talk about how we rig up our cameras. How do, what are these cheese plates that we're talking about? There's no cheese, by the way, in the cheese plate. Um, and, well, there shouldn't be uh, normally. Um, and, uh, and so we'll be talking about uh, camera rigging. And then uh, we'll talk about custom computing with Puget Systems on Friday. And of course, uh, two hours of, of Q&A on Saturday and more introspection on Sunday. So uh, as always, a pretty uh, busy week um, to uh, to get us started there. And now we are starting the second hour. Uh, you're probably wondering what just happened there. So we're working on this situation. I'll give you a little bit of background here. Um, but we, uh, uh, we're working on starting and stopping very precisely so that we can do automatic... Um, you know uh, sectioning of this show so the goal um, is that i'm going to start <laughs> whether the the production team in the back end is ready for this or not I will stop at about 755, uh, 759, 55 seconds. And we're eventually, you'll see, instead of me sitting here uncomfortably, you'll see it fade to black and then, and then it'll we'll fade up and I'll start again. Um, and so, uh, so the, um, so anyway, so we are kind of, kind of moved down that path. So just, uh, just, just, you'll, you'll see us kind of moving through that. But the goal is for us to start and stop very precisely at the top of the hour. And the reason for that is that we want to, um, we're going to start sep- you know, separating our records out of these so that we can separate the Q&A from the, from the second hours. We think it'll be a more viewable thing for, our, for all of you. That are that are watching. So now, we're jumping into. Uh, um, the, no one's raised their hand, so maybe it's just going to be me telling stories uh, because I don't have any any of the panelists raising their hand here. But the, the goal here was we thought it'd be fun for the panelists to tell some stories about things that they've worked on, and specifically things that they learned something from. So things that were a good idea, bad idea, you know, things that we you know we're working on there. And um and if and if there's not a lot of uh, questions about them, or if there's not a lot of stories, it'll be really short. Second hour is a little bit of an experiment. So, um, so anyway, so let us know if, if you if, if you are a, if the panelists have uh, ideas about things they'd like to tell. Chris usually has stories, so I am expecting him to raise his hand. Um, and there you go, I saw it there. And, uh, and Chris is like, no, I am not going to tell any stories. I'm, you know. Uh, and Mitch, go ahead. Uh, we'll, we'll start with you.
4: Yeah, usually um, I get in trouble because this gets me into trouble uh, with clients, and what happens is. You feel obligated when a client comes to you, a new one and they want to do something that you definitely think is going to get them into trouble because one of the things that we bring to the table as producers and production people is our ability to look into the future and see where that's going to lead. And if we see a client doing something that's definitely wrong, the wrong approach, then you know for sure that uh, you have to speak up at some point. And that generally will test the relationship. I don't want to get into specifics because I got into trouble, but um, I had a client that I knew what they were asking to do uh, uh, with the editing approach and using a professional uh, that was going to supply a uh, pre-done edit of a medical procedure, and I'm already going too far. And I said, no, I don't think this is the best way to do it. I think it's best if we come in and shoot it multi-camera and that we'll do the edit rather than trying to conform an edit that uh, a unprofessional person did themselves. And uh, the client got very upset, and uh, we basically had to resign the account because they just kept pushing and pushing and pushing, and we just kept realizing if we go down this path just to make them happy, then it's going to be a huge disaster, and then we might be liable for it. So uh, sometimes you have to, uh, you know, uh, honesty is a better part of valor, so to speak, and be honest with them, and that's
0: the the one thing that can get you into trouble in production. uh, One thing I have learned over time is I rarely will say no to a client. I will just tell them how much time and money it costs to do whatever they want to do. So, you know, so it's kind of like, yeah, we can do that. You know, like I had one where, to to Mitch's point, I had one where they had shot a bunch of, they they were going to shoot some green screen, and I said, well, this is how much it's going to cost, and they... And then they came back and said, "Well, what if we have the crew that always shoots the green screen shoot it because they're a lot less expensive?" And then you post it, and I and I and I told them fifty percent more than what I told them the first time. <laughs> I was like, "And and and," and they were like, "Why would you charge you know you know fifty percent more?" For I said, "Because all the labor is in the keying, like you know the keying is where all the labor is. The shooting is the easy part. The keying is the hard part. And if they make your what you're asking me to do is take what." I've seen, you've already shown, the reason you're talking to me is because they weren't shooting very good green screen. And, um, and, and I said, I said, <laughs> I saw the green screen. If they send me that, it's going to take us weeks to get that done. Like, it's not like, that's not going to be a good experience for us. Where if I shoot it, it will take us two days to keep to key everything. And it will be five times better than what they did. And they were like, okay, well, you know, like, and so, but I had to explain to them, but I didn't say no. I'm I sure I, I'll key their footage, um, you know,
3: and, and, but it's just going to cost you uh it's going to cost you more money. Uh, go ahead, Chris. I mean, I could tell you any story you want. I could tell you a post story. I <laughs> could tell one, you a, a production a story. No, no, I'm, I'm giving you, it's dealer's choice. Yeah, yeah. oh, we're, we're post, production, post. Give road. Us po- give us a post story. Um, well, there's this company up in San Rafael. No. Yeah, uh, yeah. Not that um one. <laughs> Not that story. No, um... A, a really fun one, and I think I've told this before, but whatever. Uh, I I was contracted to come in and edit a like a two and a half minute recap of day one, okay? And I was asked to. I came in on day one, so the stuff I was going to cut was being shot while I was traveling to the location, and I get there, you know, one one or two in the afternoon, and I walk into the ballroom. And I'm lo- and it's at the Aria, and I'm looking at, like, the... I guess it would be the east wall of the ballroom, and the, the screen is 210 feet wide. Okay, so it's, like, 1080 by a bazillion or whatever. And I was, like, looking at that end, looking at that, end, I was, like, wow, this looks cool. And I was asked to cut a 16 by 9. and I was, like, what? Uh, that's not fun. <laughs> that's, that's not fun. So, before I talked to the producer... I poked in backstage and I talked to the projectionist. I said, what's your playout format? What are you doing? And he goes, just, you know, just a big giant file. I'm like, so a single file? And he goes, yeah. I go, okay, that's easy. So I went to find the producer and I said, hey, this looks really cool. And, you know, she was really excited about her big giant screen. And I said, hey, so instead of doing a 60 minute, what if I make you a file that's, you know, 11,000 pixels wide? She goes, well, you only have a day. I said, I know. She goes, can you do that? I go, yeah, I can do that. She goes, are you sure? I said, I'm positive. And um, so then I went to my room, and I did have some imagery, like high-res photo stuff that could really stretch it. And so there was that. There was multiple frames going on, like, you know, five different images going across. Anyway, so I, I start working on the thing. And at about 6 o'clock that night, uh, the executive producer comes in. He just wanted to see how things were going. I knew I was going to be cutting mostly through the night and they were going to play it the next morning. Um, the EP executive producer comes in and I've known uh, him for years. And uh, Scott says, uh, so let's take a look at it. So I, I always set up my, I, when I used to travel, I'd set up the uh, edit suite in the hotel room as much like as, so I'd pull up chairs and stuff. And so he's, Sits down and he goes, all right, let's see what you got so far. And I hit play. And like five seconds into it, he goes, stop. So what's, what's wrong? He goes, and he looks at the way. And now I have Final Cut set up where there's a giant viewer across the top of that half of the screen. And then just my timeline across the bottom half. And he goes, are you cutting this to fill the screen? And I said, yeah. And he goes, Cool. Okay, start it over. And it, 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 it right. I know, I know I've told you, but it was just and this you, little. And you've, like, done, and you've done this before, you had done this before, right? This isn't the first time you had, you didn't figure it out. No, then. no, 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 no. So, so again, the, when it comes to giant screens, what, what I call extreme resolution, it, first of all, one, it can be any resolution. They make up numbers, the projectionists, they make up numbers like, you know, crazy. Right. But the question is, is it a single file, which some playback, devices can do, or is it a series of 1920 by 1080s or, you know, uh, Ultra HD uh, files that have to be stitched together? Then the second question, if it's multiple files, is there overlap blend? So like, because sometimes it's, you have to overlap 20 pixels from screen one to screen two. So those get super complicated and those you can't do, you know, at the drop of a hat. But when the guy says, I just need a file that's 11,000 pixels by 1080, I'm like, done. Easy. I can do that. And um, and then the other thing I'll do is I'll make a sample file, five seconds of whatever. And I always go down to the ballroom. And I'm like, hey, dude, how's it going? Hey, could you do me a favor? Like, can you just double check that this is going to play? And he loads it up. He goes, yeah, you're cool. I'm like, great. All right. Have a good evening. And i leave." So... It, it wasn't like I was, I, I, I and I see what the question that you're asking, because it's potentially super reckless on my part. Super reckless to throw a wrench like that at a production crew. But I knew the people to talk to, and I had done a giant screens as a single file before many times.
0: Well, no, that's the point I was trying to make was that a lot of times what's interesting is is that when you hire someone, this is why people go like, why do you hire someone out rather than have an in-house crew? The in-house crew only knows what they've done. So the in-house crew, and, and what I mean by that is that they only, if you have an in-house production crew, they think that things are cool that are not, they're, it's cool to them because it's the first time that they did it. But a lot of us are not, you know, like a lot of us look at it going, oh, that's kind of cute. You know, like it's okay. Um, And so so companies get into these in-house crews. When you talk to someone like Chris, you know, like when you hire someone external to do your production, you are leveraging millions of dollars of education that have been given to them by other companies. <laughs> you know, like, so, so, you know, so, so the thing is, is that you're, 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 you know, when you, so the thing, when people ask like, why would you have an in-house staff? I think that for small things, you have an in-house staff, but you, you, you know, companies should never use an in-house staff for their largest projects because that company, that your in-house staff is doing two or three big events a year. When you hire an external, like when you hire someone like Chris or like, I know that for me, Um, at the height of PixelCore, we were doing between 200 and 300 events a year. And so, and they, and almost all of them were different, and almost all of them were for someone different. And it was like this constant just churn of, and probably one major one every, every week and a half. And so, and so we were just doing this, we were constantly fixing this, and and, and, you know, and constantly running up against working with different agencies, which I would learn something new from, I would learn things to do and things not to do from different agencies, different broadcast partners, different event partners, different, you go, oh, I really like, like, there'd be some little thing that I liked that they did that I would save. And then there were a lot of things that I would throw away like that, you know, and, and the more you interacted with more people, the more you, you built that up and you don't see that when you have, when you're only doing your own work. And what we saw with in-house crews is a certain level of stagnation because they only see the things that they work on. Lather, th-
3: what they do is lather, rinse, repeat. Right. And, and at a certain or even, point...
0: Even when they innovate, the innovations are generally pr- minor. pretty minor compared to what we're used to.
3: And, and, and the other thing is that um, at a certain point... So if you ask somebody, you know, what does Alex do, he, you know builds complex things and and delivers them, or, you know, I edit videos. I mean, that's that's part of what we do. But there is another level in this business where it's not just doing what we're asked to do, but it is integrating with a much bigger machine and um, interacting with people. Like, literally, I think, Alex, once I have this in my list of, Alex Lindy quotes: "You said um, that you hire people. You know, you, you, I can teach you how to do it, but I can teach you what I need you to do. But I need to hire people that can get along and that can work well together. Mm-hmm. And and that's when you go to a. And to be fair, I've done many shows for this executive producer, and and I still do. Just talked to him the other day um, for a big screen thing. I, it, it, funny thing, the the producer." she was confused about how we were gonna integrate a smaller video into another big giant screen. And she was getting uh, input from the projectionist and they couldn't, nobody could communicate well. And I, excuse me, and I said to the producer, I said, I know Jeff really well. Can I just, is is it okay with you if I reach out to him and just, I can get this clarified in like 40 seconds. She goes, please do. <laughs> and so I, I just shot him a text message. I go, hey, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, he goes, are my people not doing their job? I go, they're doing fine. Do I do this or this? He goes, do that. And I go, okay, cool. Have a good day. And and so knowing how to get along with people and knowing how to integrate with people, I mean, that's a bigger, you know, yes. the the understanding the technology that we do, that's the barrier to entry. If you can't pull that off, don't approach the table. But even if you know how to do it, you still got to get along with people. Well,
0: and also, you know, what I try to do every time is to hire people who know their specific job better than I do. And so what I do is I... I work with them and I go, this is what I'm trying to get done. And I, and I'm not trying to tell them how to do that. I'm telling them the outcome that I'm looking for. And I stay, I try to stay away from the, the, the execution. Now, if they don't know or something like that, I might try to figure it out. And oftentimes I ask them what they did because I want to learn, you know, from that process. But, but if I'm talking to like a, you know, I, I work with Brian Maddox a lot um, for live events when I'm doing, doing events where right? I have in the, in the, in the last 10 years, probably done hundreds and hundreds of events with Matt, Brian, I don't tell Brian what to do. I don't tell how, him how to do that. I just tell, I just say, I need you to, this is what I'm trying to get done. And then you tell me how, what you need to get that done and then we'll do it. And, but you only can do that when you're hiring people with lots of life experience. You know, it's not how much schooling they went to. Um, it, it's not whatever. They have to have done this a bunch of times, you know, to be useful in my opinion. <laughs> so when we do like, for instance, you know, with uh, someone was talking to me about um you know, cutting this show, the show that we're on right now. So well, I've done it a couple of times. And I was like, okay, well, when <laughs> you've done it, when you've done it enough that you can do it in your sleep, then you really know it. You know, like you don't know it until, until you've seen things go wrong and you've seen those put together. And, and that's the, that's the, um, the challenge is, is having finding people like that is really, really hard. Yeah. Go ahead, Bill.
1: So for me, it's a process of what has been, I'm, I'm trying to look back over my career and think what is important? What are the messages? What Where did I change? What did I do that changed the way I approach things? And when we're talking about this, I, you know, there's a thing that happens to you, you get good at something and then people see that you're good at something so they keep hiring you to do that thing. So you do that thing over and over and over again and whether it's this kind of meeting or that kind of whatever, you find yourself kind of getting pigeonholed even if you want to break out of that. One of the techniques I used early in my career to try to not break out of that was pro bono work. And I think I mentioned this story before, but I, once upon a time, back when I was in my early, early 30s, uh, my roommate had been um, a volunteer at one of the local wildlife rehabilitation things. And when she found out that I was uh, skilled, in some cases, at doing video, She said, can we do something for the organization? I thought, "Okay, people have been telling me I should hold out a couple of pro bono slots out of the production schedule every year. And that the reason you do that is because without a paying client, you can do whatever you want creatively. So I said, yeah, let's do something. And we were in a meeting and a couple of things came together in an unusual way. One of it is that somebody knew a friend who had a big crane. I mean, literally a really big crane, a hundred foot crane. And then we were talking in the meeting about doing a wildlife release of rehabilitated raptors out in the Superstition Mountains. So it was really cool. I thought, well, what a perfect combination. Let's take the crane out into the dirt roads, find a place, and then we can get a raptor's point of view of what it's like to like rise up out of rehabilitation and go flying off. So yeah, it seemed like a good idea at the time. So we did that. And so I found myself one day at the top of a 100-foot crane arm over the mountains shooting this stuff. And it was gorgeous and it was beautiful. And I came back feeling so great. I never would have been given the opportunity to do something like that just as a shooter. But then the big lesson came later. And that is, as I got down I had that footage, I had some of the footage of the veterinarians who were going to rehabilitate the raptors. I also said, okay, you've got a crew here of volunteers, let's talk to them. And I was so impressed by the passion that they brought to their subject. And, you know, I've been doing voiceover for a lot of years. And I've said this before here, that one of the crutches I used to use is that if my if the, the program that I was working on didn't have much drive, I could always just narrate my way through problems. As I was looking through the footage of everybody who was talking, when I finally got down to the final edit, this weird little thing came up the back of my crawling up the back of my neck said, shut up and let them tell the story. And I realized that I had enough exposition from the volunteers that I didn't have to say a word. I've told the story before of of, I took this video when I had finished with it to the thing, and at the moment of the first release, the entire audience stood up and cheered. It was partially because of the sound mix and things like that. There was a big boom at the moment that happened. But that was the day I realized that that is what I had been looking for my whole career. Finding things where I could get out of the day-to-day rut, expand myself, and and learn lessons that were more important to the storytelling part of things than it was to just getting the job done and getting the paycheck over and over again. So I will always hold out that project for me as a real turning point in my career. Started by doing for something for free, but it really released those ideas for me for the rest mm-hmm. of my career, and I'm really grateful for it.
0: You know, I think that one of the things for me is that I, I spend a lot of time, uh, um, I do a lot of free you know pro bono stuff. You know I do a lot of things like hey, let me just play with this, and I and I always I always <laughs> I think it's funny because I joke that you know for um, you know free is the. Free is the straw that drank a thousand milkshakes, you know. <laughs> so, so a lot of times I get in on things because someone will send me something. Hey, I need some help with this, and I'm like, sure. And I'll spend a little extra time on the weekends or whatever, and um, and I'll knock something out for them. Well, that's usually their proof of proofed or test case that they use to sell something. And then where are they going to go when it's working? Um, you know, they're going to come back to uh, you know, oftentimes to um, to, uh, to 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 us. Like for instance, I I uh, did this um we did this concert, uh, let's see if I can cut this here. This was done for free. And we, this was, uh, YouTube had, um, YouTube had just released 4k. So I was hungry to do a 4k live stream and I had the encoders to do it. And I just didn't have anywhere to, you know, I didn't have the, where to put it, you know? And so, um, so YouTube did this and I, and, uh, this is, uh, Natalie Don from Pomplamoose. And so she wanted to do her own, you know, little, little concert and, uh, and we went into the uh Patreon uh headquarters um and um her, her husband uh, started Patreon so um so uh, anyway so but for free we just kind of brought in we brought in a truck of gear like all the cameras all the things all the people everything else and here you can see kind of the setup we had lights and speakers and you know everything else that we needed here um and uh and the thing is is that we learned so much and we were able to train so many people in what we did um that that it was you know it was it what it didn't have is the pressure of being paid for it we were experimenting with something we don't even know if 4k is going to work um but i you know and what i find is that it's very very hard for me to figure out how to do um production in a vacuum so we can sit there in the office and wire things out and think about them but until you're on the ground and you're actually doing it um you don't know whether uh um you know you don't you don't know whether that's going to work or not you know and and whether it's really going to stand the test of production and what's funny is is that then years later when covid started this is this happened years before covid um you know patreon called us and said hey we're trying to do some streams can you help us you know because and and, and it had nothing but it wasn't we didn't do it for that reason we didn't um think of it that way we simply uh you know we were just doing it to r&d at that moment but you just never know what you're going to unwind when you do that and then we did a bunch of stuff there and it was it was good yeah go to mitchell
4: fun stuff happens in production um Way back when I was doing a project with uh, the Pepsi Challenge. Remember, they had that thing where they were uh, con- comparing it to Coke? And anyhow, there was a uh, video production that we had to do. And I'm real uh, picky about the music tracks. And if somebody's going to edit a music track, they better do it right because I'm really picky about it. Well, I couldn't get to it. But all of a sudden, the client uh, uh, decided they wanted to see a pre cut. Uh, the next morning, and I let one of our junior uh, editors do the edit, and the edit was horrible on the music. Yeah. It was just so, but we had to walk it out to the, uh, the client right then and there. So I said to the, uh, the crew, I said, oh, look, I'll just cough um, during the, uh, uh, the presentation to the client. I'll just give it a good cough. And a good cough can cover a bad edit any day of the week. So uh, we went to the uh, location where the client had. They rolled the tape. And right at that edit point, uh, not only did I cough, but half the crew coughed at the same time. So there was something definitely up. So I just laughed.
0: It was funny. Next question.
1: Next question comes just from Dave Troutman in Edmonton, Canada. I was followed by the Prime Minister's security when they heard somebody call for me to get the shotgun from the truck. Uh, (laughs) The leather case didn't help things. Anyone else have a security issue when on location? Go ahead, Paul.
2: Yeah, I wouldn't use that terminology. I would say a skinny mic. Bring the skinny microphone. Yeah, okay. (laughs) Yeah, go ahead, go ahead, Jason. Oh, that reminds
5: me. Um, I once made the mistake of saying that I needed a second shooter, and don't ever do that anywhere in Washington, D.C. I mean, anywhere in Washington, D.C. It's the world's worst phrase. Just never use it.
0: Go ahead, Chris.
3: I'm here to shoot the president. Yeah. Um, My little brother uh, used to fly, um, like, competition kites for fun, you know, the kinds with the two strings that you can steer and stuff. And the... The best case that he could find to to store it in was actually a rifle case. And the rifle case would stick behind the seat in his work van. And he would, you know, be out on the road working. He was like, oh, good wind. I, I got 10 minutes. Pull his kite out, fly for a little bit, take off. Well, he was down by Moffat Field uh, down in the South Bay. It's actually that way. Uh, Moffat Field in the South Bay. And um, the president was flying in. <laughs> And he got pulled over at a, at a side, you know, a, a, a roadblock and the guy looks and he goes, get out of the van. (laughs) Like literally he's like, And the guy pulls it out and he goes, what what is this? He goes, it's a kite. He goes, why are you having a rifle case? He goes, it fit. (laughs) Like, I don't know. It worked fine. Right. Go ahead, Bill.
1: Yeah, those those three words that I used hundreds of times as I got up to the level where I was exec sweet things, the shoot word, and then the the word, and then finally the uh, P word. Uh, I strung them together in probably 40% of my phone calls for about two years. And then I was working with somebody else and said, you know, you might want to change your language. <laughs> yeah, there's surely, the the NSA guys probably go, oh, it's Bill
0: again. <laughs> so. Yeah, the, the, um, I, uh, I definitely have learned to not, you know, say certain words also just in, in general, you want to think through the filter of security. So what is there, you know, like things like grabbing, we, uh, we had one that we had someone in security and my, my, uh, one of my counterparts, not so much me, but, uh, the guy was in the way of the. Of the camera, right? The guy, the security person, his shoulder was in the way of the camera, and so we couldn't get the camera. So the guy reached out to him and grabbed onto his shoulder just to move him over a little bit, you know, just to you know whatever. And and the you know obviously the the security guy came around and looked at him like, "What are you doing?" And then opened up his jacket, and there was an Uzi there, and he's just like. Don't do that again. Like, you know, and 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 they're like, and the guy was okay. You know, like we won't touch that person again. And um and so the uh so the, those are the kind of things like you you have to think through their their point of view of what that is. I had I was measuring a a pretty secure location and you know use these laser measures uh, to to figure it out and i missed the door jam um so it went all the way across the building you know my laser that was supposed to just measure one room went out throughout the hallway and someone came in pretty like hey how's it going what you doing <laughs> like how's how how, are you, how you doing over there and uh, and uh, let's not do that again so cuz you know obviously a red dot in a highly secure area is gets people pretty excited um anyway so um so those are definitely things you have to kind of you do have to be aware you can't just act like you are like you do everywhere else. Uh,
1: Next question. Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas. Can we do some practice productions in after hours with a crew? Uh,
0: We do. We do that already. (laughs) So we do that in, in, you know, the the practice productions are in the, uh, if you're talking about office hours, uh, Tuesdays at noon, um, Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. uh, We do a practice version of this. Um, But yeah, so I think that we already, we already kind of run through that a little bit. Um,
1: Next question. Kalalek Lopez Waterman in uh, Galisteo, New Mexico. When has weather been an acute factor for your productions? Go ahead, Jason.
5: Yeah, I've got a I've got a pretty obvious one. I did for a number of years uh, ranch shots with drones, and you know, if you're the best way to sell a 200 acre ranch in the middle of nowhere, or a 20,000 acre ranch, in in this case was to, um, you know, show it from on high and show the water and, um, you know, show it as not just this massive pile of dirt, show the individual landscapes. And um, more than once, we had to completely cancel a shoot because of extreme winds or rain. Um, and, yeah, it's, if, you're, if you're shooting with drones, weather every time.
1: Yeah, go ahead, Bill. Probably 50% of my shooting in Arizona was directly impacted by the weather, particularly heat and sun. I mean, doing external production through um, the six, seven, eight, sometimes nine months of plus 100 degree temperature is very challenging. The worst we ever had is we had, because of the timetable of production, we had to do, uh, we had a large spa manufacturer and they wanted to come out. and So we used our property because we had a pretty big horse property and Scottsdale, and they brought, I think it was eight different spas out and set them up on different locations in our house. But because of that thing I was talking about, you know, to get it into the, to get the post production done, get it into the system and go for the spa sales time, we had to shoot it in August in Arizona. And it was just miserable. You know, you have to sometimes just grit your teeth, but, the, you know, equipping yourself for it. You know, I took every camera had a black umbrella that kept the sun off of it directly. Uh, we had to cater for the fact that people were going to be going through massive amounts of water. Uh, we had to set up kind of a... um Almost like a, um, I don't even know how to describe it. We had to set up the outside temperature and then we put a swamp cooler on an inside tunnel to start lowering people's temperature before they got to the studio that was air conditioned. Because going back and forth from air conditioning to 112 degrees just saps your energy and you can only shoot for three or four hours in that before you're just out of things. And we had to school the crew. The part of the crew was from out of town. We had to school them on the fact that y- you need to behave this way. You need to constantly drink water. You need to go through this decompression chamber, basically, in order to sustain yourself through the course of this all-day shoot. In fact, we shot three days there. Uh, we ended up getting the job done, but it was one of the hardest things we ever had to shoot.
0: Yeah, we we had a uh <laughs> we had one we had a, a a um an event where we were projecting in um in a in another country and we were projecting and it, it the first problem we had was that it was hot and so during the day it was about um uh, it was about 118 degrees Fahrenheit, so um, so it was very very hot that day. And we um, the the challenge that we got into was that it uh, we couldn't turn the projectors on, so we couldn't even test the projectors properly until about six o'clock in the evening because you know people were coming. It, we still had a couple hours, or an hour and a half, but it was we typically was doing that all day. Um, and then as the as the heat dissipated, we started getting. Um, the wind started picking up and we could see, and we could see just a little bit of mist and there was lightning off in the distance. And so um, now the first thing that happened was, as soon as I saw that, I was like, we got to get a tent so you can see this. Uh, let's see if I can, um, this was the just a picture of that tent, that white tent. <laughs> that was us. <laughs> so this little blow up, it's a blow up screen and a white tent um, that's sitting there. Now, now the thing is, as I said, you got to have a, I got to have a tent, it's going to rain. And they were like, well, we can't. I said, those are two 4K barcos, you know, with DCPs, like, I need a tent, you know, like, you know, for this or or that we get any sprinkles and I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to get rid of it. So I put that tent up and then the wind started picking. So the, the lightning started getting closer and closer. And I said, if we get to 13 seconds and they were like, what's 13 seconds? And I was like, it's two miles. Like, like if we get within two miles, we need to shut the whole thing down and get everyone away from here because, you know, we're getting too close to lightning. And they're like, oh, we can't stop the, the event. And I'm like, well, we're going to have to, <laughs> like, you know, like, that's not going to, we're not going to, that's not really a really negotiable problem. And, um, and then they, uh, Then the wind started picking up and I realized that tent had a couple sandbags at the bottom of it and I realized that if that tent takes off, it's going to roll through that crowd, you know, and it's going to be a real problem. Like, you know, people are going to get hurt, you know, in that. So I took the the four biggest people I could find. And I just said, I need you to hang on to each one of these, I, I need you to hang on to each one of these poles like your life depends on it. <laughs> do not let this pole, do not let this pole rise up because that that high 10 had become a sail. You could see it kind of vibrating with all, this, with all the wind. Fortunately, the wind was going in a way that for some reason, the screen didn't become a sail. It just happened to, we just happened to be lucky and it was going the right direction. Anyway, the, um, uh, so then I put, a, I put a ladder on the far end with a, with another person. And I said, if I point to you like this, I need you to cut, I need you to take this razor, this box cutter, I need you to cut that, that the, the, the sail open. So it'll open, it'll, it'll open up and it'll let the air out the other end. And we sat there trying to figure that all out. And, and, um, and so that was like the first 20 minutes of the movie was just hoping that the wind wasn't going to blow that thing down into the, you know, it was a crowd of 20,000 people. It was going to be a, it's going to be it was going to you know be a problem. And, um, Anyway, uh it worked out fine and then of course then there then there was a drone and uh, someone was firing a drone. And someone said, We can't, we have to, we're going to have to shoot the drone out of the air. We can't have the drone up here. And I'm like, We cannot fire a gun in the middle of 20,000 people. You know, like, like, you can't, you can't do that. You know, like, and they're like, Well, we have to tell them we we're going to, you can't even tell them that they're going to do that. You know, so, so there was, you know, and by the end, I think we finished the movie. Everything went fine. No one noticed anything. And, um, and I thought to myself, uh, I, you know, I, 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 this is the wrong business for me. <laughs> like, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be in public projection. <laughs> like, like, I'm going to go back to, I'm going to go back to uh, what I was doing before. So that was the last time I did a, A a public event with uh, projection, which is something I hadn't done before. We did six of them in a week. So it was like something that, and and I was just asked to do it because I'm known for solving problems. You know, like it was like, it wasn't like a, something that I knew. It's just something that I, that I, people felt, felt like I could figure out. And we didn't, we were really successful. But after that one, I was like, I don't want to, too many variables with so many people. Um, Next question.
1: Jack Rupel, Breckenridge, Colorado. If you end up with extra time, can Alex discuss the use of a Scorpio and Ambisonic mic and some of his production experiences there? I don't have a ton of it yet. So we've been using it. We've been
0: using the Ambisonic as we figure out how to do uh, these event coverage. And so what the Ambisonic is allowing us to do with some of the event coverage and what we're testing, and I think what's going to become standard for at least some of our kits, is the ability for us to take a we're we're capturing ambisonics, so it's capturing the entire environment around us. But we're still adding two handheld mics that are going that we're basically mapping to the center channel. The advantage of that is that I can give you something that's nice and clear. You can hear everyone, but I can bring in the environment. And if you have five one, it's going to feel like you're all around. It's all around you. And we're starting to just really get our head around that. And I'm really excited about that production pipeline. So. That's what I'm working on there to keep on testing that. I mean, one of the things that's going to happen, the HDR I'm still working on for YouTube, but the 5.1 we're going to be doing in September. So, uh, you know, we're going to start, be, you know, we'll be doing 5.1 by the end of September. All of our shows will be in 5.1. Now we might not use it very much. Um, you know, our, I, there's, when everyone's talking, the center channel is generally the right place to be. But what we are looking at is, um, so what I'm working on right now is the countdown clock. So the countdown clock I'm gonna, is gonna be my R and D space for it. And I'll work with everybody here if they wanna play with this, but the countdown clock is gonna be the R and D space. And so what I'm working on is building a project that has, um, there's two ways that I'm looking at doing it. One is um, using motion, but the problem with motion is motion has, you can't load a reflection map into motion. So I'm working on figuring out a way to hack that um, I believe that I can get into the motion package and actually replace the, or get into the preferences and replace the reflection maps with my own maps. So I'm working on, you know, it'll still be named whatever it was, and like motion's not built for this, but I'm going to try to hack it so that I can put my own reflection maps in. And if I can do that, then what I can do is is take my theta. I almost did this yesterday, but the problem was is that we we're starting to get rain and it didn't say there should be rain. I felt like the hurricane was causing some kind of like, uh, anomalies, and so I decided not to go out yesterday. But it's too much of expensive equipment to get poured on. So, um, so the uh, but the goal is is to is I'm going to go to an ocean or a, or a forest or other things like that, and I'm going to capture um, ambisonic of that environment, and then I'm going to capture a uh, take a theta and capture a, a probe. So I'm going to capture nine exposures on that theta. You can get a, an app that'll connect to that, so I can build an HDR. Um, you know, probe of the, of the, um, of the space. And then I'm going to take a camera and shoot log, you know, of a, of a background, you know, it's based on where that theta is. Then I want to have this beautiful, you know, countdown clock running that's in HDR, um, that is, um, that's there with all the surround sound, you know, kind of fading in. So the idea is that, that, that countdown clock is kind of like an R and D of you, if you, if you have a five, one system in a HDR you will know if <laughs> you will see something that's really cool. And so that's the, that's what we're trying to get to with it. And so I'm um, working on that right now and uh, we will um, hopefully have it working. I, the, I, again, the five one, I think is there. I think the, I, I think the HDR, the only thing we're having to figure out with the HDR is the LUT that we use and how we convert so that it converts back to SDR correctly so, I've I, I, at first I was blaming YouTube for this, but it's not YouTube's fault. I have to get the, I have to make sure that my conversion from SDR to HDR is set up in a way that it comes back to SDR correctly, and I haven't quite figured that out, but we're close. Can I go, with Jason.
5: Um, so as far as the trade show idea is concerned, are you thinking you're going to automate this? You're going to put in some sort of ducking for the ambience? Or are you going to allow it to just be? Well, we don't straight, have to automate centered? it. Got yeah, it. so, it's
0: just going to be this round. So what what happens is is that um, uh, Mickey, we we this is already working. So that part's working for the event coverage, which is the Ambisonic comes in as four channels. We're doing four right now because the. Live, you will do up to eight channels. So we really can't do second order because that would be eight channels on its own. Um, so we have the four channels that are the ambisonic. And then we have the two channels. And we're going to do a whole second hour on this. So I'm not going to belabor it. And Mickey's going to be here and we'll walk you through the whole thing. But um, anyway, so those four channels are then converted to 5.1. And that becomes the space, right? That's the space that's there. The two, the two mics are coming down and we, might, we could do up to four mics can come right down the center channel. So we can map that. Once the ambisonics been converted to 5.1, we can map the mics in the center channel. But we've got all this other all this other environment. We can just bring that environment up and down. Because we're not, you know, because it's not connected to the mics. The mics are, are themselves their own, you know, we can make sure that they're exactly what you want and you can hear it clearly and everything else. But we can bring that, and we're using SM58, so there's a lot of off-axis rejection. So there's not really any, you know, there are essentially clean mics going down that center that center path. And so so anyway, the, the early tests that we've done have been very successful. And to the point where I think once we get used to doing it, and we're going to keep on telling people how we're doing it, I think this is the way to do this. You know, like it's it really, it's so much more than stereo, in my opinion, when I'm listening to it that way. So... Um, I think it's going to be really, I think ambisonic is a really powerful tool to event coverage of all kinds, whether it's golf or, or tennis or anything else, grabbing the environment and pulling it back in is really interesting. I, I, I push back on the, the concert stuff because concerts are really complicated in themselves, but because there's a lot of people all stacked around everything and it's got lots of amplification and everything else. But I think that it could work in a lot of other places really effectively. Um, next question.
1: Next one comes to us from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. How would you do your own production from home just for fun?
0: I uh, I have a lot of gear at home. So when I do production at home, it probably a little over the top. So um, I did some TikToks with my kids, and um, I, I I figured out a way to map my, my phone to the top of a, a Blackmagic 6K so that we could shoot the whole thing in 6K, Um, shoot their segments in 6k but they could still follow along with the voices of you know like you have the the audio that you're trying to follow along with on tiktok so we had to figure out a way that they could hear the tiktok and do the thing that they wanted to do but we shot it all with um with a black magic 6k and um and then and then recut that all in final cut both for 16 by 9 and um, and uh, for uh, 9 by 16 you know I did a pan and scan for it to, to make that actually happen but so so I, I tend to use it as an opportunity I think if you if you you'll see you'll see my kids many years ago if you go somewhere on YouTube if you do a search for the McDubbies they like to call it, they, they called it the McDubbies um, you'll see I think there's only one video up there that we did and then I had a lot of time for a little while so we were playing with all these TikToks and then I got busy and so I haven't built anymore now go ahead Bill I'm Paul
2: yeah, I got a uh, an email from TikTok today saying I don't meet the age requirement. Oh, there you go.
1: Age so requirement. I've got to oh, work on that.
2: I'll have to do something yeah. to fix Absolutely. that, Alex. I don't yes, know that's, what that's I'll have
1: to do. Thing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, next question. Dave Troutman, Edmonton, Canada. Just three words. Working with animals? Yeah, go ahead, Bill. I've done a lot of this, as people around here kind of know. I I got hooked up with PetSmart back in when they were a couple of dozen stores. And by the time we ended our relationship with them, 15 years later, they had 12 to 1500 stores out there. So I have shot all sorts of animals. Uh, There are a lot of stories to tell. You know, two things. Number one. Have somebody on set who works with whatever the animal is all the time, a handler or somebody. In in a lot of cases, you don't want to do it yourself. Most animals are chill and they're fine. There are some that are definitely not. Uh, I still to this day, and I adore cats. I don't have one right now, but we've had them through the years. Uh, we had to do a video on bathing cats and my subtitle for that is there will be blood. Um, particularly because we didn't have some, you know, just somebody brought in a cat who had knocked a whole thing of honey on itself and they wanted it bathed. And somebody said, well, we should just shoot this. That was not a pleasant shoot. Later, we had an expert come in who told us all about the process. Working with cat is a little bit like working with fissionable nuclear material. You have to be very precise and very careful to do it if you want to get out of that unscathed. Um, the other really weird one about working with pets is that we had to shoot a couple that were really horrible. One was crickets, because they're feeder crickets throughout the entire store process. And I am not a big fan of crickets. Some people may love them. I find them one of the most annoying beasts on the planet. They do not smell good either. But we also had a lot of really great experiences with large uh, animals emus, llamas, um, horses. And I think. It, you know, I like animals, so it was a joy to be out there, and probably the best day in my entire career. I was working, and the in the supervisor of the whole video process, Tom, happened to be on the set that day, and he came over me and he said, "Shut it down!" And I said, "What do you mean, shut it down?" And he said, "Look at that dog. That dog is stressed." We were doing, a, I think, a grooming thing or something. He said, We're going to shut down until that dog feels better. Now, this was when they were a smaller. They've been bought three or four times. But I remember feeling like I can work with these people. They're not just here to get stuff sold, they really do care about doing it right. And we shut down a crew of 10 for maybe 20 minutes to let that animal settle down. And become comfortable with the shoot. And it made for a better shoot. Instead of all the behaviors that the animal behaviorist who was on set say that cat, yeah, it's not quite a good shot. He seems really tense. They were sensitive to those things I would have missed as somebody without that expertise. So that's my thoughts about animals. Next question. Next question comes to us from Tlaloc Lopez Waterman in Galisteo, New Mexico. Generators, line power, battery, which has gotten you? Go, Jason. Oh, boy. Um, we were in the middle of nowhere in,
5: um, I don't remember, some sort of a hotel. And um, it was right next to the breakfast room. And there were too many microwaves running yeah. on the breakfast room's circuit. I think you know where I'm going here. And... Um, Ever since then, let's just say I've uh, <laughs> I've always had an uninterruptible power supply, and luckily that day I did too, because um, my monitors were the only thing that you
0: could see after that entire breaker was tripped. Yeah, we had one where we had two cat generators. These are full sized, um, <clears throat> full sized uh, containers that are that are got generators in them, and they had two of them, primary backup. But the client didn't want to spend the money to keep them both running the whole time, and so we had one running. Um, and, uh, and then overnight it, uh, the, it went down, um, and, uh, it, it, the head gasket blew. And so when we got there, it was all running again. And what happened was, is that they had, whoever was there overnight, just plugged into the other one, cat turned it back on and they flipped the truck back on, you know, they had done a hard stop on the truck and then picked it back up again. This is a full, you know, 42 foot double expando truck. And, uh, Everything was working and this is the problem was they were like, we can bring you, of course, Kat says we can bring you another generator. And I'm like, you know, if I ask for one now, if I say I don't want it and this other one fails, then I, then there's a big prod, you know, I'm accountable for it. If I say to replace it, now we're in a replacement thing where there's a risk. And uh, I felt like if I said, if you can get it to me at this time, which was an hour and 45 minutes before the show. Um, I should have said no, but I didn't. And um, I said, if you can get it before this time, I can, can, we'll put it in. And so we very carefully brought the truck back down and brought it back up. What we didn't know is that we had corrupted, the first time it got hard stopped, we had corrupted the controller for the Harris router. And when it comes back up, the the two controllers, there's a primary and a backup, they just, they copy each other. So when we went down and went back up, the Harris router copied the bad card to the good card. So now the router was gone. And so we were an hour and a half out and, uh, and uh, we, you know, at an hour before, you know, we still don't have any cameras and um, we shot the red carpet part of it with, uh, with an iPhone and, um, and then, uh, you know, to capture that to play for playback, which we were going to capture with a camera. And then in about 20 minutes before the show started, was, was scheduled to start, the first camera came up five minutes before all the cameras were up, but the graphics weren't up and we just used a jib against the LED wall. And, um, and we started on time, (laughs) but, but I have to admit all of us had to, um, stare at the wall afterwards for just a little while. Like we were just like, just to, just to kind of get our head back, head back into it because it was a pretty big project. And, um, you know, when you have two cat generators and a double expando and that's the least expensive part of your project, then that's, that's a big project. So, um, so anyway, so those are the things you power is something that Uh, What we what we needed to do there was have those two power go into a UPS and have them both on a day before and never say we could do something the morning of like it's just like well we're gonna have to do the best we can and explain that to a client. Um, That's what we learned from that one is to um, move slower with the power. Next question.
1: Douglas Carmichael airline airport immigration customs stories.
0: You know, the first time I went to, I, I took a bunch of gear out. I didn't know that the Carnets existed. That's why I wanted to do the Carnet thing a couple of weeks ago, was to make sure people knew what Carnets were and how they worked and that there's people that do them. I showed up at the she- in the Seychelles uh, with about $200,000 of hardware to do some interviews. And they were like, what are you gonna do here? You know, like and 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 fortunately I was with a DP that has done this a lot and talked our way, went over and talked to them for a little while and explained that we were new and everything else and and we got through it. But that was a um yeah, that was an exciting one <laughs> for us. But but there's you know, there's you know, for us a lot of those have been um, you know, we had we came out of uh Israel we had done with, with a model named Bar-Refeli uh, and uh, we were in Tel Aviv and uh, we got there and, and uh, they looked at our cases and they opened up one and then they just opened up all of them. So there's like six, six foot tables, just all of our gear all laid out. And we we're like two and a half hours before this, so I wasn't that stressed, but an hour and a half before, and then an hour before the, the flight, I was starting to get pretty stressed. And, and they were like, "We need to keep this." And they showed me my my sound device is four four two, and I was like, "I can't, I can't, <laughs> I can't leave that here. I need it in New York tomorrow." And um, and uh, so then they and they said, "Why are you here?" And I said, "Oh, we're doing an event, an event with Barrafelli, and we just finished an event with Barrafelli." And and they came back and they said, "Can you prove it?" And fortunately, Barrafelli had posted a picture on Instagram of me behind one of the cameras like that just happened i just happened you see like half of my face and it's just like i'm doing this show or whatever so that i was able to go to her instant instagram account and say here this is me see and um and they and then there was this huddle and they were like barfell, family barbara and they came back out and they said you can go <laughs> and so so it was and it was a uh, but that was a uh, that was probably the one that i probably the closest to uh um to that code bill
1: Well, just about the logistics of moving around, I had a three-stop East Coast shoot, and it was a, a relatively low budget. I was a little bit squeezed, so I decided to do it myself, and I packed very carefully. I think I had four cases. And I thought, you know, I've done this before, but I was used to Western airports where usually there's not that much difference between, or distance, between where the uh, bags land and you can get to your rental car or van or whatever you're doing. This was one of those cases. It just didn't work that way. And I remember particularly taking the gear back. I drove into the airport to the rental thing, and I was like 70 cars back Where this, you know, five lines of rental cars being returned and the hassles of trying to schlep two bags on the roller and then come back to the car and schlep two more bags and then come back to the car and get the keys and turn it. It's not always the things you think of. Now, I wouldn't do that without a three person crew period. Right, we showed up, all of our stuff was
0: always like, if there was more than cases than one person could carry in one trip, there was people that went with them to, to solve yeah. all that and and we take our own carts, we do our own things, you know, like, yeah, absolutely it's, and,
1: and this again Cartage comes is from, important
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Next question We're going to kind of qu- move quickly because we don't okay. have a lot of time and
1: yeah. Okay uh, Andre Nolly, Berlin, do you remember situations in production where you were overstrained because of circumstances? If so, how did you how did the situation turn out and what did you learn from it?
0: I mean, I think that we've all been in situations where suddenly this is just a whole lot more complicated. And usually it came down to somebody saying, oh, yeah, we can do that. That'll be easy. Uh, that will be easy is the word that gets you into the most overstrained things. And so, you know, you, you're not estimating what it actually takes to actually get it done. The most recent one of this was actually my brother coming the last week was that was like, oh, this won't be that big of a deal. Joe will come over to my house and we'll do this thing. And I woke up at three o'clock in the morning in a panic of just suddenly, like I had everything kind of laid out. And I was like, oh, I didn't think about all the returns. And so I was up there like running cables and testing things and pushing things out and putting all the like hanging stuff over my, you know, and so I got into this like, There was like, you know, three and a half hours of me just jamming away and then Joe showed up and then we had to test the stuff with his camera. And then, and by the end of it, um, and and again, it's usually for me when I get overrun, it's not for production productions, because as I said, when I do productions, I'm super conservative. Like I, as we've said before, I try to keep everything 40 to 60% of capacity, um, to make sure that I can do it. Um, but home productions or ones that we're doing for this show is where we really get ourselves over overwhelmed because, they're experimentation. We haven't done it before. And, you know, those are the things that that get us into into trouble. So um, anyway, so that was my most my most recent story, <laughs> which is only a week old. Uh, next question.
1: Tommy Shantz in St. Paul, Minnesota, on the other bottom end of the thermometer, what issues have you had because of cold and freezing temps? Go to Bill. The biggest problem was do indicators on the old cameras, helical scan stuff. That's gone, thankfully. So not. I don't see as many problems with that. I will say I had to shoot uh, dog sledders in Kabloonik up in the Colorado Rockies. And the snowpack at the top where we were shooting the dog sleds going through was probably 30 feet deep. And the guy told me not to step off the trail at any time. I made a mistake and did that. And I sank up to my hip in powder and realized that if I had tumbled that direction, I probably would have kept going. So you just have to respect the environment and weather. When people tell you to do things to mitigate weather problems, listen to them. Next question. Uh, David Brady in New York City. Uncomfortable situations while miking talent. I have a number of tales, some where the talent were very reassuring that it wasn't her first rodeo.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that the making talent is a super tricky, tricky thing. And, um, and especially when it comes to making women, because they, their clothes are very complicated and obviously you want to be appropriate of, of getting those. I almost always have women, mic women. So I will, um, I, that's my general rule. And if I see, if I know that I have a woman that is talent, un, you know, I, I don't always have control of this, but generally I, I try to book somebody that's going to be an A2, that's going to be a woman just to, to make it, You know, not not complicated for everybody. Um, but if not, then you need people who really know what they're doing. Like this is not a place you take someone that has never mic'd someone before. Because that what happens is they fiddle a lot trying to figure out how to make it all work. And that that's usually really uncomfortable. And again, you always have to think about talent as a as a flower. Male or female, it's a flower. And if you whack it against the ground and make them stress, then they're not gonna get the best performance. So you just you just want to be careful. Bill, real quick.
1: Yeah, it's exactly that. You have to know what you're doing. You have to be sure about it. You, you develop things. I had my wife do 99% of our female talent. If I had to, a couple of little things I did, I would always try to lower myself and my eyes so that I was looking up at the woman I was miking rather than looking down. Um, th- little things like that. And then having the right tools, knowing everything was prepared in advance so you could do it. Yes, experienced talent and models, they could care less. And you. so you have to say, have have you, uh, you know, how long have you been in the business or something like that? And sometimes they look at you and go, "Just do the job." And the two things that are really useful
0: for this are there's guide wires that you can actually attach a mic to. You can attach the lav, you know, the TA four to, and it's a long flexible wire that will just go through um, clothing, and then you can just pull it through it, and it just keeps you from having to do a lot of stuff with your hands. So it just it's just a really it's a really useful. And the second one is called a mic bullet, and it'll attach to your. Um, you know, to the end of your TA four or TA five, like the little one, and you drop it in for someone's shirt or or for clothing. It just it just uses gravity. It's just a, it's round on the front. Um, you cannot take it through TSA. <laughs> so just in case you're wondering, something that looks like a bullet and says "Mike Bullet" on the outside. They're just like, no, you're gonna have to leave this here. I've lost a couple that way. Uh, next question,
1: Walt Palmer in uh, Lewis Delaware White House stories. Um, you know, I think that the 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 uh,
0: the most interesting thing for me was just really realizing the level of detail that we needed to work at, at the, in the white house, you know, and it was just, um, you know, that, that you really had to pay attention to, like we, we had some chairs set, sat out that they brought. And I said, oh, they said, be careful with the chairs. They're a little old. And I said, well, how old are they? And they said, 200 years old.
1: <laughs> <laughs> was
0: like, Okay, let's, let's all be careful with the chairs. And, you know, we used, you know, the, uh, carpet squares you know like if you look at pictures of any of our behind the scenes you see all these little carpet squares because everything's expensive you know and so and and they and most production companies don't take care of it and so we were seen as a very high-end team mostly because we um because we took care of everything so that's that's the thing we learned the most from the white house uh next question
1: Tlaloc Lopez-Waterman, when producing events in extreme temperatures, how do you make sure your crew does not get overheated, overtired, or otherwise endangered? Uh, Yeah, go ahead, Bill. I spoke to that a little bit. Awareness you have to be awareness of what's going on there you have to if you don't live in the area and you're coming in from the outside get people around you who do live in the area and if they'll tell you you know this is heat and humidity and it's you can't shoot for more than 15 minutes at a time before you have to take some kind of break listen to that they know what they're talking about often and one of the things that, that
0: it, I am pretty protective about the crews, in the sense that, you know, I normally say, I, now I oftentimes won't say it's because of the crew, because a lot of crews in a lot of parts of the world will work in all kinds of conditions, but I'll say, well, my equipment can't run. It, w- your, your event yeah. may fail if the ambient temperature is over 75 degrees Fahrenheit. Like I just, I'm just, I can't guarantee a show if you do that. And so it's in my rider that we, the equipment, you know, is not guaranteed past 75. Now what that does is it forces there to be air conditioning, <laughs> Like it's just for my crew. And and so it, it, I don't do it now. So I've said this on a show. So now people are going to be like, oh, we just know you're doing that for the crew. Well, yeah, I am doing it for the crew because the crew operates better <laughs> under 75 degrees Fahrenheit as well. And so um, so we've been in a lot of places. I will resist working outside at almost all costs. Like not always. Like there are a handful of them, but I got to be in a tent. I think we talked about this in the past, but I had one where we were in Vegas and, and they and they had the, they had all these open tables and I said, well, I need a tent. And they were like, well, we can't give you a tent. You know, like nobody else has a tent. And I said, well, I need one or I'm not going to show up. And, um, and I was worried about dust and sun. Like I wasn't, you know, I wasn't thinking about rain. I wasn't thinking that they would pour water out of the sky. Like that's, I mean, it was the most amazing rain I've ever seen um in Vegas. And it, and it just did millions of dollars of damage. and our one little tent was sitting there with all of our gear all dry. And so I was like, so so um so tents are something that I'm particularly, uh, I will always put the crew in it under, under some, under some cover. And it's the gear, it's the people, it's everything. And I usually want to enclose it if I think it's going to be dusty. Um, And the other thing is I like to enclose tents and then get portable air conditioners. You know, like I like, you know, I like those kinds of, you know, let's figure this out. Um, So, so I think that that's it when it comes to cold Um, you know, again, enclosed environments, somewhere people can warm up and then warning people ahead of time that you will need to dress in layers and giving people very explicit instructions on how to be used to the cold. You know, I grew up in cold, so I'm not like, I know that there's three layers or four layers that are required and what kind of boots to wear and what kind of, you know, those kinds of things. But, um, a lot of our Southern California, uh, production folks have never seen the snow (laughs) or not very often. So, so we have to kind of explain to them what, what's necessary so they don't show up in a t-shirt. Uh, next question.
1: Dave Troutman, Edmonton, Canada, any fantastic or spectacular locations you got to work in? Yeah, guy do. Yeah, that that uh sled dog shoot was unbelievable. Off in the middle of winter with guides who took us up, we had one quad, but the rest of everybody was on dog sleds with these fabulous dogs and the spectacular scenery of being on the top of the mountain in the dead of winter with those fabulous animals was just stunning.
0: I think for me, the big, we did, we did, we did some work in Angkor Wat and Cambodia. And there was something about like working in amongst, not in the temples, but amongst the temples, you know, near, near elephant, what was called elephant terrace. Um, We had a big projection similar to the one you saw there before. um, And uh, just really, uh, Something very amazing about that space. You know, Angkor Wat is quite. If you haven't, if you if you ever are in Southeast Asia, Angkor Wat is kind of an amazing space to see. So, well, there we go. I didn't think this. I thought this was going to last like ten minutes. So very well done, and and the questions started picking up. I was I was like I don't know where the questions will come from if we start with these stories, uh, but uh, lots of great questions there. So thanks to the thanks to our producers uh, for for keeping this running and really guiding what we were going to talk about there. Um, of course, remember we have Nick Justice tomorrow, so it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, Nick's going to be talking about um, photogrammetry and uh, LiDAR and uh, and, a, and Unreal Engine. So um, so it should be a, a great second hour. Uh, but great questions today. Thanks so much for keeping this going. Thanks to the panelists, of course, for sharing these sharing those stories and, and process and, um, and thanks to the incredible crew on the back end that has made this totally possible so the, the people who are managing this event these, these, these hours, the people who are doing these hours the people who are, who are building the infrastructure for these hours we really appreciate all of your contribution uh, we traveled 87,000 miles today 140,000 kilometers and that's uh, 693 million bananas for scale alright, let's go ahead and jump into After Hours
1: The best, the best part, Anchor Wat is the sandwiches. They had these breakfast sandwiches.
0: We used to go to every single time, every day. They are dollar, one dollar. Like I, it was funny because I was getting like I was getting breakfast at the at the. It was like a buffet. It's a very nice hotel buffet, and you're getting it's like twenty seven dollars or fifty four. I think it was like fifty four dollars for the buffet. And I was like, I think I like the one dollar sandwiches better. <laughs> so I just get two of them. The colder the location, the better the breakfast. Do you ever notice that? Yeah. Well, this was really hot, but it was. But, it, but we always get there right when he opened it. And I don't know what he put in the eggs. It was like this little egg sandwich, and he there was like I took a video of it even to try to figure it out, and I still still can't quite get it right. Something in the sauce, and I haven't figured it out yet. Magic. Magic. All right.